Emergency Medicine Abstract with Sanjay and Mike. And we're on. Hey, buddy. Hey, friend. How's it going? Has it been a long time? Happy June. It is uh, June in future land where you guys are listening, and it is April 1st, ha, where we are. And for the record, well, it's sort of impossible, but I, as I was driving here, I listened to the April edition, and in that edition, we asked people to send in their, you know- your best pranks. Your best pranks, particularly if they were medically related. And thus far, we have received zero. Thank you very much. Which either indicates, one, it would have been impossible to hear that until today, and therefore impossible to send them in, which is, let's just say, likely. Let's say that is what happened. That's likely. Or two, you guys have no pranks at all. And Maybe then, the prank is I'm that very they, disappointed in you. they didn't send it in. You see that? That's we prank. said good pranks. Good pranks. Why? Maybe it's not a good one. <laughs> it's definitely not a good one. Yeah. So this is also the, since it is April 1st now, this is the ceremonial time when I, because when we do these recordings, I kind of operate the uh, the mixer and everything else, set up the mics and stuff. This is where midway through, I like say something like, oh, I forgot to right. X, Y, Z. I usually do that sometime during the recording. And you Mike, know, I did that with Mike Whitney. Goes, <gasps> <laughs> I did that. See, I know better because I can see the little doohickey in the the lines are indicating that it's it's receiving sound and the little red button yeah. is, is clicked. But I did that with Whitney Johnson when she's subbed in and she's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't it was like halfway through. It was like 99% of the way through. She's like, oh, wait, are you? Oh, okay. We'll just have to do it again. <laughs> That's she's, how she she's said so it. She's so nice. Because I know. Because if that had been, I, I would have just dropped yeah. the mic and said, well, I'd you been can like, do it by somebody yourself else then. do this one. <laughs> But it is June, where it you is. are, Alyssa, summer is, oh, wait. Summer is upon us? Can't let the June episode go by without saying happy birthday to my beautiful wife, Amanda. Happy birthday, Amanda. Yeah, happy future birthday, Amanda. I guess she's listening to it in yeah, June. she'll so. listen to it in June, and people she knows will listen to it in June, so. Birthdays are a big deal. No, they're not. This is one I've thing. I've had almost 50 of them. <laughs> this is one thing Mike and I will never in our lives agree. See, because. The irony of it all is that our birthdays are two weeks apart. Yeah, we have the well, same I mean, birthday. Two years and two weeks apart. <laughs> okay. But so we often end up celebrating it together, yeah. like some dinner with our friends, etc., yeah. etc. Et and it's always like this song and dance. Ah, I don't want to celebrate my birthday. Blah blah. I just blah. don't care at but all. But then we do anyway. <laughs> but that's because of you. I I don't care at all. Zero. And I don't need a birthday to say, hey, let's get some friends together and go out for dinner. It doesn't matter to me. That's all good. The, the birthday celebration, totally unnecessary. The focus. Okay, what about for what about for kids? Kids, they get their birthday, but they don't, haven't had 50 of them. What age does it stop? Four. <laughs> you see? You're, <laughs> you're heartless. <laughs> okay, five. Wow. <laughs> I just, sometimes I don't know how I can sit in the same room with you sicken me. Well, next month, I'm going to wish my wife a very special birthday there you go. in July, but that's because it's a special birthday. There are occasional milestones in she's life, turning, but I don't- She's turning 50. 30. I can't but believe you just said that it's out her, loud. It's her 20th, 30th birthday. <laughs> Is that, is that what that's, we say? That's, that's, how we, that's how we do that. And we, there will be much rejoicing. Are we going to do uh, something? Well, actually, since, since you asked, we're really not doing anything. And the reason oh, for yeah. that is multiple. And, and that is that my daughter, Sophia, who is 
now a junior in high school and is, you know, sort of going through this whole sports thing. This summer's a big year for, you know, getting offers in track or soccer. That's a whole other thing about which sport she's trying to do primarily, et cetera. And we got to go on college tours and all this stuff. So there's really not going to be a great block of time this summer. And my son is, has to take summer school in college this summer. So there's really just not a great time. So what we've decided to do is have like, you know, a regular birthday this year. And then next year, next summer, when things will have become very different and there's graduations and all that kind of stuff, we're going to go to Bali for a month. And that's going to be a joint 50th birthday because that will be approximately when I turn 50. I'll turn 50 in October after next summer. So that's what we've decided to do. So now I'm on the record in front of all of the EMA sphere having said that. So it must be done. Can I just say for a guy who, and I've always doubted the sincerity of this, to be honest, quote unquote, hates his birthday. Going to Bali for your 50th, kind of a... Oh, and and, I'm going... And talking about it over a year in advance. Even (laughs) I haven't talked about what I'm going to do about my birthday, and I love my birthday. Your 50th is still like 17 years away. I'm going to let the listeners decide which one of us actually Uh, into their birthday more than the other. And for the record, I've already started looking at houses in Bali, and I'm big ballering it. There's just no doubt about it. It's going to be off the chain. Hey, you're invited to come, FYI. I'm getting a place. It has like enough? so many rooms that everybody now, when you can say come. you're invited to come, you're looking at me, but you're talking to everybody listening. You're all invited. April Fool! If I can get a big enough place, uh, hey, it, it, it's highly possible. Maybe we can do the taping there. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, the Bali episode. The Bali. It'll be like completely nonsensical. It'll be like, oh, my internet's down. So these are a bunch of papers I remember reading in the you past. You know, like all the like the 80s, like when they used to have the TV shows and they would do that like vacation oh, episode. Yeah. The tra- They don't do that anymore, right? That's like not a thing really for sitcoms. Yeah, I don't think it is actually. It's, and it's kind of paradoxic, right? Because now sitcoms are, or, you know, basically all shows are much more longitudinal than they yeah. used to be. So you think they'd go on vacation. You'd think they'd go. Because there was like, you know, Saved by the Bell went to Palm Springs and yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, like of course, the your, classic yeah. Brady Bunch went to, you know, Hawaii and Absol- got the Tiki oh, curse and all that. I mean, that started it all. The tarantula, that was terrifying. Nice they reference. Gave me, well, I mean, you know, it's like that burned into my brain hole there, you know. All right. So speaking of burning things into the brain hole, <laughs> what we got on tap this month? Uh, let's see. We've talked about my birthday. Yeah, I again, think that's, that, Mike's <laughs> obsession with his birthday. I think that that's all I have on. Oh, wait, no, there's, oh. So we have 20 papers this month. We haven't even started yet. Yeah. 20 papers. We got the triple T ALN. Well, we got Jess and Jenny going to yeah, summarize. Of course. Ul- ultra summarize. We're going to summarize. They're going to ultra summarize. Mel is then going to ultra, ultra summarize. We're going to distill it down like an uh, like a very, very fine vodka to the point where there's basically just nothing left. left. You take a no. drop and you get all 20 You get it. It just it. blows up in your mind. And then so. time to talk a little nerdy is... Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about validity. And I haven't heard the segment, but I assume there's going to be all sorts of stuff about face validity, internal validity, external validity, blah, 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 blah. So that should be an interesting segment. All right. And uh, shall we jump into June? Well, I think we've had enough adieu so without further adieu let's go happy june pay for chase abstract number one videographic assessment of tracheal intubation technique in a network of pediatric emergency departments a report by the videography in pediatric resuscitation viper collaborative and this is by donahue et al from the illustrious annals of emergency medicine so when compared with adult airways, pediatric airways are known to have lower first-pass success rates, 
and higher rates of physiologic deterioration, usually in the form of a little bit of hypoxia, likely due to a combination of not doing airways in kids quite as often as we do in adults, differences in their basic airway anatomy, and differences in their physiology, little kids' physiology that predisposes them to things like bradycardia during an intubation. The value of video laryngoscopy is still up for debate, as the Cochrane meta-analysis, which included 12 trials and just over 800 kids, concluded that VL was associated with a higher intubation failure and longer intubation times, while observational data from the NEAR group, the National Emergency Airway Registry, showed superiority of VL and the VISI trial, which I think we covered a couple of months Mm -hmm. ago, which was done in the operating room, not the ER, but still on pediatric patients, showed a 5% increase in first-pass success rates and decreased rates of esophageal intubation when using VL in infants less than one year old, so little, little kids. So in this paper, we get data from the VIPER Collaborative, which is an awesome name, Videography in Pediatric Resuscitation Collaborative. And if you remember when we were doing the paper selection, I said, when I hear VIPER, it takes me back to my childhood, to like a reference from the 80s, from a cartoon. G.I. Joe. It's G.I. Joe, but do you watch G.I. Joe? I watched. I was not a religious G.I. Joe follower, as you were. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, I was a religious follower of every cartoon uh, yeah. when I was little. I watched yeah. too much TV. So no, it was like this whole episode about the Viper. And it was this guy who would call and say, like, the Viper is coming. The Viper. 5.45, like that. And so they thought it was something about Cobra, you know, like the, of course. So they would but go. It was really so they just would like a videographer. They, they, they would think to no. They would think about these clues, and they'd be like, "Where could it be?" Blah, blah, and they'd show up somewhere. They'd be like, "Oh, it's like a, a latitude, longitude, five forty-five, and there'd be some Cobra base there." And then he'd call again and be like, "The Viper starts on the west," and they're like, "Oh, we got." And they they like think about the west and they find some other Cobra base. But in the end, it does turn out it was just a coincidence. It was just a window wiper. A wiper. He was like talking about wiping a building and the rest of it was all coincidence. The Viper episode. Kind of a classic G.I. Joe episode. Anyway, the Viper. He learned something today. So this is observational data from four different emergency departments where all resuscitations are video recorded, which is really cool, actually, examining three outcomes of interest. Number one, tracheal intubation success. Number two, time of laryngoscopy. And number three, occurrence of hypoxemia. The patients were categorized as infants if they were less than a year old or children if they were greater than a year old. And a successful attempt was one in which the endotracheal tube was successfully placed in the trachea prior to removal of the laryngoscope. So sort of a one blade insertion. You could put in the tube a couple of times, but when you took the blade out, that ended the attempt. Okay. So that's a little different than that study that you had just covered about the endotracheal tube versus the bougie, which was single insertion of the laryngoscope. And only one That's pass correct. of whatever. But this is much thing. more in line with what right. airway studies usually report. Yeah. So, of just under 500 kids with video data, overall first pass success was 67%, and the eventual success rate was 97%. Median duration of laryngoscopy was 35 seconds, and hypoxemia occurred in 15% of patients. This was not a trial, right? This is observational data. VL was used in 48% of attempts, and it had no association with success or incidence of hypoxemia. VL intubations, they said they were a little bit longer than DL intubations, but when you actually look, it was six seconds longer. 
So it was just a touch longer. Some other interesting observations were that AppBox was only used in 8% of cases, hmm. which is, you know, I looked a little bit. I didn't see a lot of data looking at AppBox in kids. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if I think about it when I'm in the pediatric ED quite as much. Maybe I do recently. But anyway, that was just, these are all pediatric EDs, you know, supposed to be the cutting edge and used less than 10% of the time. And adjunctive techniques like cricoid pressure, external laryngeal manipulation, lip retraction were very rarely used, which makes sense. That kind of goes with my pediatric intubation experience. So this is kind of a nice picture of the landscape of pediatric airways seen through the lens of pediatric emergency departments where they do this kind of stuff a lot. One thing that's really unique about this trial is the way in which the data was collected, this sort of video review which they did talk about a little bit, and it did have excellent inter-rater reliability, very little missing information due to sort of poor quality clips, like somebody was in the way, they couldn't see something, basically almost none. Like the videos looked good, they got all the information they needed. It's interesting, when when you first said this, I imagined it was the video of the laryngoscope. But it's, you're, you're describing something different. You're describing a camera on top of the thing, given a bird's eye type view That's of what's exactly going what, on. Yeah, they have pictures of it in the paper. Sure. It does look like a bird's eye view. That's exactly right. Gotcha. So they could look at everything. Right. They could look at time, you know, the setup time, the, the hypoxemia, hypoxemia yeah. all that stuff straight from the video. It's actually a method I would love to see used in more studies of resuscitation. I recognize like there's, you know, privacy issues and IRB issues. and The way they dealt with that here was actually very interesting. They got consent from all these people or parents after the fact. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, we videotaped it. Is it okay if we review these things for the study? So yeah. that's you know one way for researchers out there who want to do this, or even if you want to do it for QI purposes, to think about handling it. The major limitation here is that as this was observational data and not a trial, we just don't know why one method was chosen over another for these cases, right? So saying they're you know definitely equivalent and VL might not have value in certain cases over others. We just can't comment on that at all. But for me, there are two really nice take-home messages from this paper. Number one, pediatric airways are hard, right? Even in a pediatric ED where they do this stuff a lot more commonly than those of us working in general EDs, the first pass success was only 67%. Let me stop you there for a second because I've been thinking about this issue. I'm not convinced at all, and this may incite some pediatric uh, emergency physicians, that they would be better at pediatric airways than we are. And the reason for that is that, or we, I mean, the, a general ED doc. And the reason for that, in my view, might be that we do a lot of airways. As adults, you know, we have, we muck with blades and tubes and troubleshoot all the time. And pediatric intubations are actually infrequent, even in pediatric EDs, compared with sort of how frequently we're just dealing with the stuff. So, you know, there's there's like a counterbalance. I have no doubt that they're more expert in the anatomic considerations of, of the pediatric airway, but that's probably offset somewhat by the relative infrequency of actually having to deal with any airway. Shoot. No, I, I think that's a fair point. I didn't get into it. There's a lot of detail in this paper, actually. They do break down success rates mm-hmm. by the type of intubator. Sure. So whether it was an ED resident, a PEDS resident, a PEDS attending, that mm. kind of thing. And the ED residents actually did the best overall. So that would tend group. to support my hypothesis, which is, in fact, completely a hypothesis. I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and not a, so, not a fact. Yes, I, I think that's fair. <laughs> but knowing that if you look at all sure. people across the board, if you're not getting it on the first trial, you have to call up to the NICU for help or something. Don't feel like right. it's a failure. No, you know, I, th- this and I think really that is a good a- message. Like, 
you know, yeah, if, if, if it doesn't work right off the bat, that's okay. It's going to work 97% of the time it worked, right? Yeah, so but, this that's probably the big take-home message from this observational paper. And the second one for me is that they did not see a clear superiority of VL like other recent published studies have done. And I think that one has real meaning too, because if you sort of feel like, okay, VL is the way we're supposed to do it. That's kind of the standard getting pediatric VL training. That's a lot of work, you know? So now there's a really big paper saying, oh, pump the brakes, you know, probably both are okay for pediatrics. So I think there's two really nice take-home messages from good quality observational data. Editor's commentary. In this multi-site observational study, the authors did not observe an increased success rate when VL was used in pediatric patients. Overall first-pass success rate was about two-thirds, which validates just how difficult this procedure is even at pediatric emergency departments. The fact that they did not see a clear advantage with VL is a meaningful message suggesting we don't need to immediately invest in obtaining and training in pediatric VL. It's probably good to have as a backup, but at this point, I don't think it's a mandatory new first line. Okay, abstract number two. Thunderclap headache syndrome presenting to the emergency department and international multisantra observational cohort study by Roberts et al. in the Emergency Medicine Journal. Obviously, Headaches a super common complaint. Some estimates say as much as 2% of all ED visits are for headache. Most of the time, the overwhelming, overwhelming, but the large majority of the time, it's of benign etiology. But certain features have historically been associated with a higher risk of severe pathology, specifically the thunderclap headache, which is associated with a high risk of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And it's been reported to occur, subarachnoid hemorrhage that is, in as much as 20% of patients with thunderclap headache. But the data are old, inconsistent. And I think that, frankly, this is, at this point, stuff that just keeps getting cited without any update of sort of more modern epidemiologic data. These studies investigators set up the HEAD study, which was a multi-center, multinational observational cohort study of patients presenting to any of 67 centers with a headache. The specific aim of this investigation was to determine the prevalence of thunderclap headache in this cohort. And let me be clear, this head study has broader aims overall, the sort of this conglomerate. This specific study was looking at the thunderclap headache. They then wanted to describe the incidence of serious pathology among the group with thunderclap headache. And finally, they wanted to describe the investigative strategies used across the institutions that participated. This was mostly a prospective cohort. That is, at most sites, a research nurse or physician obtained the information directly from the patient, but at a few sites, the data was obtained retrospectively through chart review, and that methodology and how frequently it is used actually is not reported. They just say sometimes we had to do that for whatever reason, and on balance, we thought that was a good idea, but you know, take it for what it's worth. It's not the cleanest registry study I've ever seen. The study included all adult patients presenting with new... So patients who had recurrent multiple episodes of headache were excluded. Severe, so only patients with greater than 7 out of 10 headache were included. And atraumatic headache, so again, traumatic headaches were excluded from this. Only those patients were included as long as they presented to one of those centers during the year of 2019, which is when the data was collected. The definition of thunderclap headache for this study was 
a severe headache of immediate or almost immediate onset and peak intensity. So it started really abruptly and it reached peak intensity immediately or almost immediately. And I think even just saying those words has a lot of value because it is, you know, when we're thinking about sudden onset headache and thunderclap headache, that way of describing it to patients is kind of what I've started to do. And I, I like it. Yeah. And, you know, and they do go in, in their discussion and talk about how previous studies have had sort of more variable Lucy definitions of it's hard to define, you know, and people use weird words to describe the onset of their headache all the time. I mean, I'm sure we all can relate to that. So, yeah, I, I like this definition. Now, how well patients say yes or no to that question, I, I have no idea. And there's actually some reason, which maybe we'll get into, to think that maybe there's some variability in the interpretation of that. Anyway, they had 4,500 total headache patients who were enrolled, of which 644, or 14%, had the thunderclap headache. Median age for the thunderclap headache folks was 44. Just about 80% of them had GCS of 15, so 20% had a GCS less than 15. 30% arrived by ambulance. Of those 644 patients with thunderclap headache, serious intracranial pathology was identified in 70 of them, so 11%. It's a very high clip. This is substantially higher than the non-thunderclap headache group in whom only 3% were found to have a serious pathology. What was the pathology? This, I don't think, will come as a huge surprise. The most common serious diagnosis was subarachnoid hemorrhage, and that accounted for just under 4% of the total cases with thunderclap headache. Okay? Other intracranial hemorrhages accounted for 2%. Stroke occurred in about 2%, and then a couple of other things, viral meningitis, which they considered to be serious pathology, TIA and neoplasm occurred in just over 1% each. Somewhat surprisingly, only 62% of this thunderclap headache cohort got a plain CT. Another 5 or 10%, it's a little hard to tell actually, got some other neuroimaging, probably an MRI. Most of the time it was an MRI. All of the cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage that were diagnosed, every single one of them was diagnosed on plain CT. Okay. So a number of patients also got LPs, which rarely revealed anything except for the occasional viral meningitis. And as I said, there were no cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage that were diagnosed on LP that were not observed on the CT scan. CTA was performed 13% of the time. So it looked, again, some of these, the numbers in this thing are actually kind of hard to sort out, but it was CTA occurred 13% of the time. It looked like most of those were in patients who had a subarachnoid hemorrhage on their non-contrast CT. But, and this is sort of an interesting one, among the patients that got a CTA, three and a half percent of those CTAs revealed an incidental aneurysm that did not have any evidence of bleeding or recent bleeding. Okay. So that's kind of interesting on itself. And we'll get maybe into that in just a moment. So the paper then gets very detailed about different imaging and diagnostic strategies used, but it's, it's frankly very hard to understand because not much clinical detail is given about the varying situations. For example, they don't describe specifically the rate of serious pathology or imaging yield in patients with a thunderclap headache who had a normal GCS. Like if someone had a thunderclap headache and they're in a coma, I mean, you know, we know what to do. You got to pursue that like crazy. But in the the normal GCS, what's the rate? And is it different? How different? We don't know. Similarly, they do not attempt to specify the time of headache onset, which might help contextualize decisions about whether or not, you know, a CTA or an LP would have been considered. If all these headaches presented within two hours and the CT was negative, given what we generally think, 
then, you know, an LP or whatever might not have been indicated or a CTA might not have been indicated. If, if it was a much longer duration, then that muddies the water. It's Again, it's interesting to note that only about a total of 70% of those patients who had thunderclap headache had any form of brain imaging. And we don't really know why, but to me, that likely reflects some degree of inter-observer disagreements about whether it was truly a thunderclap headache or not. The research nurse said, ah, that sounds like thunderclap. The clinician that went in there at the bedside got a different story that was more benign or something like that, but we don't know that. For me, this paper gives some of the best point estimates for how worrisome a thunderclap headache is, and the answer is pretty worrisome, with intracranial hemorrhage prevalence of around 5 or 6%, and might be higher if some of the patients who did not get neuroimaging were later found out to have a bleed, or conversely, the denominator should have actually been smaller, right? That the do- denominator was really only 70% of the total that truly had it, and that it was the research methodology that made the denominator look a little bigger. So this should certainly validate the practice of liberal non-contrast head CTs for patients with thunderclap headache. Importantly, the incidence of incidental aneurysm in this cohort was also pretty high at 3.5%, which should give us some serious pause about using this, the CT angio, as a primary diagnostic modality in cases with thunderclap headache who don't have anything evident on CT scan. You know, I know you, you've been nodding your head about that one, so I want to pause and give you a moment to speak. Yeah, no, I agree, because this comes up a lot in, the, yeah. in our clinical shifts, which is, you know, you have somebody, we have decided it's a thunderclap headache, it's sure. real, you know, we'll make it simple and say it's been eight hours or something outside of that CT window, and we need to do something. Should we do an LP or should we do a CTA? And this discussion often comes mm-hmm. up in the clinical areas where we say, well, from my money, the LP is a very patient-centered approach, you know, because it'll give us the information. It's harder for us. We have to set up and do the LP, et cetera. CTA is easier from a doctor perspective. We just click a button and get a CTA. But then this incidental aneurysm rate is really problematic for yep. these patients. And headache patients get headaches a lot. And so then every time they come in for a headache, someone's going to be like, you had an aneurysm last yeah. time you were here. And, yeah. you know, the unnecessary procedures that could result. I'm a big LP fan. I am too. And, you know, I I had a conversation with one of my um, neurosurgical colleagues, a brilliant guy at at USC, about this specific issue because it came up when we were like at a meeting, we were talking about some case, you know? And I said, you know, what do you do when you get somebody who basically has an asymptomatic aneurysm like this? They come to an ED and he said, it's really problematic for two reasons. First, they've got a headache and they've got an aneurysm. How do you know that's not caused by the aneurysm? He said that. And then two, he's like, every time they come in, somebody's going to be worried they have a subarachnoid. So he's like, basically, clip it. I go in there and yeah. we, you know, either endovascularly or otherwise clip it. But I said to him, you know, but every time they go to the ED, having had a clipped aneurysm, that's not going to make us happier. We're not going to be like, oh, okay, well, they, you know, they had an asymptomatic aneurysm. We're really worried. Or they had a clipped aneurysm. Now I'm not worried. It's not going to change anything. And he looked at me like with this eyes, like, oh crap, I see your point, you know? And so I agree with you completely. And we covered a paper years ago that showed how it has to be harming people to get these aneurysms clipped because they have a complication rate around them. So, you know, I agree with that, that the liberal use of CTAs is problematic. That wasn't the main point of this paper. It was to tell us that five or 6% of these people have intracranial hemorrhages, you know, so be aware of that when you're thinking about patients with thunderclap headache. But I think this discussion is very valid and it should be kicked around in our clinical spheres for a long time. Editor's commentary. This good but limited cohort study showed that thunderclap headache occurs in about 14% of all patients presenting with new atraumatic headache. 
Serious pathology is present in over 10% of such cases, including a greater than 5% incidence of intracranial hemorrhage. Non-contrast CT scan identified all the cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage in this cohort, but this may be misleading as the time from the onset of the headache to CT scan was not described. Unruptured aneurysm was found in 3.5% of cases. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Evaluation of direct oral anticoagulant use on thromboelastography in an emergency department population. This is by Genrette et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, have basically slowly over time supplanted warfarin for the treatment and prevention of thrombotic events. And while they are superior in many ways, certainly from a patient perspective, a decreased risk of ICH overall, no need for routine blood draws to check your INR, they can be challenging for ED providers is there's no rapid way to assess sort of the anticoagulation level or state in a patient on one of these medications presenting with bleeding. And it's not just as simple as saying, well, let's just err on the side of caution and say they are therapeutic and stuff, because these drug-specific reversal agents, these andexanate alphas and stuff, are very expensive. And they may be totally unnecessary, because these drugs also have very short half-lives and the DOACs do. The DOACs, and patient compliance with them is not always perfect. Right. You know? So you don't want to give these expensive drugs unnecessarily. But APTT, PT, INR, these things do not correlate with DOACs. So there's been an increased interest in using something else, right, to figure out how anticoagulated this person. And these viscoelastic assays, the TEG and Rotom, right, they give us information about anticoagulation, and they can do it in real time that these more traditional assays do not. Right. And we covered, I think it might have been just last month, within the last couple of months, that anti-factor 10A assays exist in the lab, but they're not in widespread use, and they take a long time, and all yeah, that kind of it's stuff. it's a time so issue. Tag That's right. Is, could give it to you. Trauma patient comes in, their family says they're on something which, you know, usually means like nothing, you know, like some cholesterol medication. How do you figure it out? Yeah, well, that's the question, right? Because the data on whether or not the TEG and Rotom can actually do this looks pretty good in vitro, but in vivo samples or in real-world patients, the data is very conflicting. So these authors attempt to assess the effect of DOAC use on TEG parameters in patients coming to the ED. This is a single-site retrospective cohort study among adult patients on either rivaroxaban or apixaban who got a TEG for whatever reason in the emergency department. They excluded subjects who had an unknown DOAC dose or regimen or if they were last taken greater than 12 hours ago for once daily dosing or greater than six hours ago for daily dosing. That's what they say they did, but it gets a little bit confusing when we actually get into the results. And there weren't a lot of patients here. They present data on 40 patients, 63% male, half of them were trauma, half of them were medical, maybe GI bleeds, something like that. But I'm sorry, just, just to pause because I, I want to make sure I understand this though. In theory, all of these patients should have DOAC in their blood. They've tried to exclude people who weren't taking it or took it too long ago or whatever. So they should be anticoagulated. They probably should be. We'll get into it in a second. Just pause your question. Like I said, it's a little messy. 
So like I said, 40 patients, 19 of them on apixaban, 21 on rivaroxaban. So the TEG, for people who know TEG, it kind of produces this thing that looks like a, like a drinking glass. Like it can be like a champagne glass shape or a goblet or wine glass and all those different things like the length of the stem, the width of the glass are different clotting parameters that they're measuring. Okay, and the length of the stem is called the R time. That's the reaction time. And that's the time to which the patient starts forming a clot. So any anticoagulant on board should, should make theoretically affect the R time. The R time was prolonged in only five out of 40 patients. And one, only one, had a reduced what's called the MA or maximum amplitude, which is the strength of the clot. So if it gets really wide, that means you have a really strong clot. If it stays narrow, you have a weak clot. Only one had sort of a narrow looking thing. All the other values were normal. So to address your question before of like, well, were they on anticoagulants? What they did was they did a subgroup analysis because this was all chart review, right? So it's subject to when the, if the doc documented when the last dose was and stuff. So they did a subgroup analysis on patients who took their last dose in a time window that should have correlated with peak effectiveness. Okay, so these are the people they said they... They took it two, three hours ago. They took it two, three hours ago. So it was actually taken less than 12 hours ago for patients known to be on once daily dosing or less than six hours ago for twice daily dosing. And what they found in those patients, there's only 14 of them, only two out of the 14 had an elevated... R value or a prolonged R value. Which is roughly the same fraction as five out of 40. Right. So mm. that's still a little bit dependent on chart review. So they also looked at patients who had a high anti-factor 10A assay level or elevated low molecular weight heparin level. This is what you had talked about before. Right. They do have these tests. Yeah. So sometimes they got sent and only 25% of these had an elevated R time and none had other abnormalities to suggest hypocoagulability. So even when we knew for biochemically proved they were taking one of these anticoagulants, a DOAC, still the TEG looked relatively normal in three quarters of the cases. So this is a pretty small sample, further limited by the fact that, like I mentioned before, the time of last dose was really highly dependent on this chart review. But they did try to focus their attention on, although a very small group of people who really did look like should be anticoagulant at this moment in time, and the, these uh, viscoelastic assays, Tegan wrote them, still didn't work. Editor's commentary. In this mixed sample of trauma and medical patients, Teg was not reliably affected by rivaroxaban or apixaban use, even in subgroups who, by all other metrics, were in fact anticoagulated. If you think that Teg is a useful tool to guide management for patients taking factor 10A inhibitors, it is not. Abstract number four. Effective time to treatment with antiarrhythmic drugs on return of spontaneous circulation in shock refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by Rahimi et al. in the Journal of the American Heart Association. So this study looks at the relative effect of time to drug treatment in shock refractory VFVT. The drugs that are being evaluated are amiodarone, lidocaine, and the illustrious placebo drug. So let's take a couple steps back. You may, but probably don't, remember the ALPS study. This is the amiodarone lidocaine placebo study. This came out about five years ago, and we covered it on EMA at the time. 
Basically, ALPS was a randomized trial of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in VF or VT. The patients were randomized to receive either lidocaine, amiodarone, or placebo in addition to the usual stuff, epi and shocking and all that kind of stuff. The net effect of that study was that lidocaine increased the chance of ROSC relative to placebo and amiodarone, but they all had the same dismal survival rates of around 22%. The authors here wondered if there might be an effect of time on ROSC. Essentially, is it possible that lidocaine or amiodarone work way better than placebo or one another at getting ROSC if they are administered right away, like in the first few minutes, but that that effect goes down to nothing, you know, after several minutes or after there's a prolonged no flow or low flow time. So that's, that's the question. They take advantage of the parent study, which documented in almost all the cases, the time from the 911 call till the time when the medication was administered for the three meds, which includes the placebo. Essentially, they then plot the probability of ROSC against the time to administration of the medications and look to see if there's any difference in those plots across the three medications. Making sense? I hope so. Patients, again, to be included, had to have shock refractory VF or VT. So that means they got on the scene, they gave them one shock, and they didn't immediately convert, and then they were enrolled to the study. They came from 55 different EMS agencies across 10 North American cities. 3,000 patients were enrolled, of which all but a handful had their time from 911 call to medication recorded. Mean age was 63, 80% were men. Most had a witnessed cardiac arrest at home. Median time to drug administration was 17 minutes across the three treatment arms, and ROSC occurred overall for 36% of the cohort. And that seems a little high, but again, these were mostly witnessed shocks, and these are patients with VFVT. These aren't right. This people. is like a best-case scenario out of hospital cardiac arrest. It's not the absolute best because most of them didn't have it in like in a public place. Where there's a defibrillator that's, there. That's yeah. usually your best case. Witnessed, public place, etc. But it's a pretty good case of people you know, who have VFVT, witnessed arrest, etc. All right. What about the key findings of this study? The probability of ROSC dropped dramatically over time for all three agents, right? from roughly 50% ROSC rates if the drug was administered within five minutes of the 911 call to about 15% if it was administered after 35 minutes of the call. So interestingly, that's true of placebo too. So somehow placebo becomes less effective over time, which of course is not possible. But what it reflects almost certainly is that you know it took them a long time to get there and, and initiate good CPR and other things that are associated with ROSC. Now, What about the active treatment drugs? There actually is a hint of something here. It's kind of interesting. First, lidocaine consistently had a higher probability of ROSC than placebo at all the time points. But that's what the parent study showed anyway, that lidocaine outperformed placebo. But there is no heterogeneity, at least for lidocaine versus placebo, in terms of generating ROSC over time. It doesn't work really, really well at the beginning and stop working as well as placebo later on. For amiodarone, though, the story was quite different. The probability of ROSC was slightly higher compared to both placebo and lidocaine when amiodarone was administered very early, like less than 14 minutes, but then crosses the unity line and the probability of ROSC decreases as the times extend out and actually become inferior to placebo and to lidocaine after about 20 to 25 minutes. They don't present survival data in this paper, probably because overall it was only 22% and 
when you slice it by different times, you know, you start to have very low survival rates with very wide confidence intervals. But that's, you know, so we'll, we'll set that aside. So what does this mean? I mean, ultimately, probably nothing, right? The authors go into some detail about the pharmacology and pathophysiology that might explain why early administration of amiodarone could be particularly effective, but late administration of amiodarone could be detrimental. But that's really hypothesis-generating stuff at this point. Definitely interesting, but needs to be studied before widespread adoption. That's it. I mean, we got to be a little bit realistic, right? There's probably not going to be a forthcoming study that randomizes people to, you know, lidocaine in the first five minutes versus amiodarone in the first five minutes, and then, you know, does that sort of incrementally across the five-minute interval. So we may be stuck with this kind of data for a while. And it certainly creates some space to think that, you know, if this out-of-hospital cardiac arrest happened right in front of me, or the arrest happens right in front of me, maybe amiodarone is the better choice. Or probably more importantly for the emergency physician, by the time that patient hits the ER, if you're giving the antiarrhythmic drug, that's probably 25 minutes later, and there's a hint that amiodarone is actually worse than lidocaine, so maybe err on the side of lidocaine. After all, it showed higher rates of ROSC to begin with, so that's something to consider. Editor's commentary. This is interesting data from a very important pre-hospital study of amiodarone, lidocaine, and placebo for out-of-hospital shock refractory VF and VT. The key finding that timing of amiodarone infusion had a differential effect on ROSC compared with the other agents is interesting. Early amiodarone infusion was associated with a higher chance of ROSC compared with early lidocaine or early placebo. On the other hand, late amiodarone infusion was associated with lower odds of ROSC compared with late lidocaine or late placebo. These findings should be considered hypothesis generating and will require more study to confirm. Abstract number five, proper preservation of amputated parts, a multi-level shortcoming. This is by Sinatro et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And I don't think we have ever reviewed a paper on this topic before. The preservation of yeah. amputated digits and limbs? Uh, none this will be a first. This will be a first. We've so, talked about amputated digits a couple of times, yes, but not the not preservation. preservation. So if you have a patient who has a traumatic amputation, there are lots of things that sort of really have to line up in order to have a successful even attempt at reimplantation, including the location of the injury, yeah, having the part, <laughs> right? The mechanism of injury, we know that sort of like crush injuries are not very good candidates for reimplantation, you know, sort of guillotine straight ones are. Surgeon availability or access to a receiving center that has that surgeon or that reimplantation, there's a lot yeah. that needs to go into a real go at it. But even I mean, if we're you at a reimplant all of center. them, yeah. yeah, we're at a reimplant center, and I would say of the transfers that we get that come in for reimplant, what do you think? Ten percent of them, maybe they even try to reimplant. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's not as many as you'd think it is because by the time you get there, a lot of time has passed, etc. But at least they're the experts who can say this is not a good candidate. But one of the keys is that you know the amputated part not only has to be found, like you said, but it does have to be handled properly to optimize viability and maximize chance of surgical success. Now, per ATLS, this involves wrapping the part in saline-soaked gauze, putting that into a watertight bag, and then putting that bag on ice, in ice. Question, because I think this is probably the most important part of this for us, is just actually to know this. Are you supposed to wash the digit? First, do they say anything about that? Didn't comment. Okay. 
So this is just, I think, they didn't say Mm -hmm. in here. They say that it's indirect cooling. And you're right, that's very important. And we'll see that not all of us are doing this. So the aim of this study was to estimate the rates of proper handling by arrival mode and see how correct preservation correlates with treatment course and outcome. So it's pretty cool. It's a retrospective review of 91 cases. The chart method review is uh, the methods are not very well described, unfortunately. They say they were reviewed by two authors, but that's kind of all they say is that two authors did it. They identified potential cases via ICD codes and then excluded cases without documentations of the preservation method. So there were of the 90 cases they described, there was an additional 46 who they didn't say how they arrived. So and some other relevant exclusions as well. Most of the 91 cases, about 80%, were upper extremity digit amputations, finger amps. Of the total, about a third arrived to the ED with properly preserved parts, 34%. In terms of mode of arrival, 51 of these patients arrived either via EMS or private vehicle. They lumped them together, and 25% of these had properly preserved parts. 40 of the patients actually arrive via transfer from a referring hospital, and in these, still less than half, 45%, arrived with the part properly preserved. Shame. For shame. (laughs) And, you know, you could say like, okay, well, I don't know, I wasn't sure, maybe it doesn't matter anyway, you know. But arriving with the part preserved correctly did impact the rate of going to the operating room. As reimplantation was attempted in 58% of cases with proper handling versus 23% of cases with improper handling. Sure. Of course, it's, you know, it's likely that if you really thought this is a really excellent reimplantation case, you might be really, really careful. And if it's like, uh, this is like the tiny little tip of a digit, maybe you're less careful. I don't know. That's probably the I'm biggest. I'm not sure that we should be that way. We should probably just do it right every time. I think that's right. And that's probably the biggest limitation of this paper, truthfully. But just in case you're curious of what the errors were, right? most common errors in transportation were placing the either the part in a bag with no gauze wrap on ice or putting the part directly on ice. Right. So that's just put it in a bag full of ice. Right. That's so now really bad. You've got ice stuck to the that's thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So... Interestingly, the authors, they didn't describe the methods much, but they do a nice job of describing their own limitations. And like you said before, it's possible that they were clearly non-viable. They just like threw them in a soup can or whatever and were like, you know, soup can? Yeah, I don't know. You know, you know, whatever they had on hand. Right? I mean, they we didn't... are a re-implant center and I have seen some stuff come in that's pretty gnarly and like, you know, bugs in it and stuff. But I've never seen a soup can. Yeah, you got to work a few more shifts, <laughs> I guess. It is also possible that the ED provider, because this was all based on chart review, might have taken a lot more time to document a, you know, a preservation method if it was incorrect. Maybe like for medical legal reasons or something, they're like, this finger not going to survive. I'm going to write down that it was somebody else's fault, that they transferred it incorrectly. So that's possible. And again, we don't know how inconsistencies in the data were handled at all, right? Because they reviewed the whole medical record. So what if the ED doc said, it was handled perfectly, but the surgeon was like, nope, they didn't have it wrapped perfectly. So we, we just don't know. And I think, you know, sort of what we said at the beginning, probably the thing this paper does more than anything else is just remind us on proper preservation technique and remind us that knowing it is not enough. 
We should actually just do it, like you said. You know, it just takes an extra couple of seconds to wrap it in some saline soap gauze. Just do it correctly and let the receiving center figure out if it's implantable or not. Saline soap gauze. Put that in a baggie. Put water, that baggie. Water safe bag. Water, yeah, Ziploc baggie. Mm-hmm. Put that baggie in a baggie of ice. That's right. Indirect cooling. That's the key. Editor's commentary. In this single-site descriptive study, the authors report that among patients with a traumatic acute amputation, the majority of amputated parts were not properly preserved and transported even when coming from a referring hospital. There are some limitations in the methods that bring the magnitude of the findings into question, believe the general message, and hope this paper serves as a good reminder on proper preservation technique. Abstract number six, thiamine supplementation in patients with alcohol use disorder presenting with acute critical illness, a nationwide retrospective observational study by Pawar et al. in Annals of Internal Medicine. And I swear, you know, we've talked about this before a little bit, but we were just talking about thiamine supplementation and how like, I've, I'm like, I forgot about that. And we see so many severe alcoholics at our institution. Rarely do I really think about doing thiamine supplementation. And we were talking about that in a clinical context, or at least I was with some residents. And, and then all of a sudden there's a paper on it, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Do you remember seeing anything like that? There's no. somebody out there well, I, I funneling remember, this information to I certainly remember when we were in residence, the banana bag was like a standard right. part of the management of a wide variety of patients, right. not even those just with sort of alcohol abuse disorder, use disorder. But yeah, now it's like... We're, where yeah. to go? Right, and, and, and is that right? Where, well, where? I think I think the banana bag, you know, sort of left, right, because that had like all sorts of stuff, yeah, the multivitamin, the yeah, mag, and all that stuff. But I am not sure we haven't thrown the proverbial baby with the bathwater, right? Because the thymine, I think, is not as consistently administered. And you know what? Apparently, I'm in good company. So first, remember that patients with alcohol use disorder are commonly thymine deficient, and basically, why that is is multifactorial. It has to do with people that have diets that are rich in alcohol, don't have diets that are rich in thymine. But it also has to do with inflammatory changes in the GI tract that reduce the absorption of B vitamins and thymine's B1, impaired storage of thymine where it's stored in the liver. So when the liver is damaged from alcohol use, it doesn't store it very well. And then for some reason, alcohol in the blood impairs the usage of thymine. So functionally, this means that about 80% of people with alcohol use disorder have relative thymine deficiency, which can progress if untreated for many years to Wernicke's encephalopathy, which again, by review, is that triad of confusion, ataxia, and ophthalmoplegia. And then if, again, left untreated, that can progress on to Korsakoff syndrome, which is memory impairments that are disproportionate to other cognitive impairments that are all associated with thymine or caused by thymine deficiency. Interestingly, in rare cases, Wernicke's encephalopathy can be iatrogenically precipitated by glucose loading in acute care settings for patients who are, you know, sort of on the edge of severe thymine deficiency. And because of this, basically everyone recommends giving thymine supplements to patients with alcohol use disorder who are in any way sick. Okay. The point of this study was to determine if we actually follow everyone's recommendations. They look at a large clinical database that comes out of this, the Cerner network. So all the clinical data from Cerner basically feeds into a data warehouse with 65 million users, and it has lab records and medication orders, et cetera. And they queried that electronic health system. 
The authors examined patients admitted to the ICU with a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder and something else serious, which could have been alcohol withdrawal. It could have been sepsis, DKA, or traumatic brain injury. All of these are conditions that are associated with a higher risk of Wernicke's encephalopathy. And the the goal, again, was to determine the fraction of these patients who received thiamine supplementation and to sort of describe the timing of that supplementation. Over an eight-year study period, they found 15,000 patients who met their criteria over 133 hospitals, all of whom, at least theoretically, should have been prescribed thymine. After all, there are no contraindications to thymine, I guess, except for a known allergy to thymine, which I don't think it really exists. So they were mostly, they were age 52, and the large majority of them had alcohol withdrawal syndrome as their primary thing. So these are optimal candidates, right? Alcohol use disorder, severe alcohol withdrawal in the ICU. How many of them got thymine during their stay? 51%. 51%. So very low number, considering that probably that number should be closer to 95 or 100%. And that's administered during the stay, not prescribed on discharge. During the stay. Yeah. Okay. So only, like I said, only 51% got thymine during their stay. The numbers were a little bit better for patients who only had alcohol withdrawal as opposed to the ones with sepsis or DKA, but it's still only 59%. Of people with diagnosed alcohol use disorder and sepsis and septic shock because they were in the ICU, only like 25% of them got thymine supplemented. You know, we don't have to go into this over and over and over again. I mean, obviously we should be doing this. There's no contraindications. And this data set has all sorts of, you know, potential errors and things like that. But I think overall this rings true. We forget things like thymine supplementation. And I, I get it. I, I get that we, why we forget it. We're dealing with benzodiazepine titrations, phenobarbital titrations, airway management, all sorts of complicated things with these patients. And thymine just falls off the radar. Of note, most of the time that thymine was given to a patient, it was started in the ER. Interestingly. So if we started it, they they continued it in the ICU. If we didn't start it, most of the time they just didn't, they never got it. So I think that, you know, we should be doing this. That much is clear. I think this is an optimal thing that should be, you know, an EHR reminder or pop-up should be engineered for. You know, you're giving someone 12 milligrams of benzodiazepines. There's a little pop-up that says, hey, have you given this person who seemingly has something very bad related to alcohol thymine? But that doesn't exist yet. And so until it does. Just remember, thymine for alcohol use disorder is severe and and critical illness. This is a large, apparently nationally representative retrospective cohort study showing that only about half of patients with diagnosed alcohol use disorder and admitted to the ICU receive thymine supplementation. The clinical effects of this oversight are not assessed. But given the known risk of thymine deficiency in this population and the risk of developing Wernicke's encephalopathy, this is an inexpensive and benign remedy. The patient highlights a missed opportunity to reduce morbidity in this very vulnerable population. Abstract number seven, comparison of push-dose phenylephrine and epinephrine in the ED. This is by Nam et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So the best way to treat a hypotensive patient is obviously start with fluid resuscitation, volume, blood, if necessary, and then move on to vasopressors. Slow your roll, dude. I'm taking notes. Yeah. However, there are circumstances where, you know, you're like, oh, because the pressors might be taking too long to mix up, or you need to do an emergent procedure, like an intubation on a hypotensive patient, or you don't have central access and your hospital doesn't allow you to run pressors through a peripheral line. 
So there's lots of reasons where you could think of using what has now come to be known as push dose or bolus dose pressors for like a quick, rapid bump in the blood pressure for a patient. These are commonly, effectively, and successfully used in the operating room setting. But data describing their use outside of the OR are not quite as enthusiastic about the process because even though it does work, dosing errors are very common and may result in negative clinical effects. So in this retrospective observational cohort study from Loma Linda here in Southern California, the authors add to the literature on the topic by describing their experience with both push-dose epi and push-dose phenylephrine in the ED. They identified 96 patients who got push-dose phenylephrine in the study and 39 who got push-dose epi. The baseline demographics were largely similar. Patients were in their late 60s, hypertension and heart disease were in about a third. Basically similar all across the board, except for one thing, which was disposition. More went to the medical ICU who got push-dose epi and more went to some surgical service who got push-dose phenylephrine. Not exactly sure why. So they looked at vital sign changes. There were no differences in change in heart rate between either of the two groups, whether you got push-dose epi or you got push-dose phenylephrine, but there was also no change in heart rate at all. The heart rate pre either one of those two, the delta was zero for one group and like minus one or minus two. Because epi is supposed to increase your heart rate. Yes, it is. So that is like a little bit of a strange finding. I can't really explain. They don't really have a good reason for why that was either. The push-dose epi patients had a greater bump in their systolic blood pressure, an increase of 33 on average versus an increase of 26 in the push-dose phenylephrine group. So it worked yeah, a little pretty, bit better. The clinical significance, I'm not sure. Yeah. Dosing errors were more common with push-dose epi, about 13% versus 2% with the push-dose phenylephrine. The dosing errors were all that they gave too much medication. You're supposed to give like, you know, 10 mic, 20 mic increments, whatever it is. No wonder their blood pressure went up higher. That's probably true. But they did do some look for like adverse events and things like that. And they said they didn't find any adverse clinical events from those increased doses. They were pretty mild. They weren't like 50 times increased because you did a horrible, you know, mix up or something like that. Mortality was higher in the push dose epi group. 54% versus 38%, but obviously we can't assume causation. Maybe they were sicker, and that's why they got the push-dose epi. So the medication error rate in either group, 12% or 2%, is lower than reported in other studies. But here's the thing. They say that in their emergency department, they have pre-mixed syringes with push-dose epi and push-dose phenylephrine in it. So you know, if you look up how to do this online, it's always complicated. Mm. Take one cc of this. 9cc, make dilute sure. Dilute it. Yeah. Put, add another liter. Literally, it. it's, it's, like, like, <laughs> it's like you have to put 1cc of air in the syringe. So when you mix it, you know it gets mixed. Otherwise, you might just push the... It's like it's this whole complicated thing. And that's where the dosing errors occur because you drop the wrong epi or something. Sure. So here it's like pre-labeled, pre-mixed, hand it to you. You just have to push a cc and they still had a dosing <laughs> error like 12% of the time. It's you know really remarkable, actually. So... Limitations here are that this was a non-blinded chart review process. So maybe there were adverse events and they just didn't want to see them. That's very possible. It's retrospective data. We have no way to assign causation. 
And there's no description of how missing data was handled in their sample. Like if, the, you know, maybe there was a, you know, because it's, it's just the blood pressure was however it was recorded. It's not like they were standing there. Six, two hours later. Could have been two hours later. We just don't know. So there are some limitations here, but generally look like with these pre-mixed syringes, the practice is pretty safe. And I tend to agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of this practice. I understand the OR, but I, you know, we've talked about this, I think it's been a while, but the OR is different. I mean, they're getting sevoflurane. They're getting stuff that you know is going to suddenly take a normal, healthy person and vasodilate them, you know, and all you need to do to make their blood pressure go back up is to vasoconstrict them. And, you know, it's a lot more complicated with trauma patients, septic patients, trauma septic patients, et cetera. And so I'm sort of skeptical overall of the value of this push dose epi, which I don't think has been, you know, shown to have clinical improvements. But I know that the train is starting to leave the station and people are doing this and stuff. So I think this is really a good reminder that if you're going to go down this pathway and incorporate this into an emergency department, having it in a, you know, highly labeled pharmacy sort of, uh, what's the word, overse- overseen by pharmacy is the way to go. Yeah, to I would go that. one step further and say, like, if you mix it up yourself, you're going to mess it up. Yeah. You know, so if you have it pre-mixed, I think at the time I, I actually just used this on a clinical shift, like uh, last week on a conference coverage shift, we had like a hypotensive patient, very sick, about to get intubated. And we did use some push dose epi right before we pushed his intubation meds, you know, but it was the pharmacist who had mixed it up and pushed the dose and reminded me of the correct number of CCs and stuff. So I felt very safe. I think that's where you're going to go wrong is dosing error. So just don't mix it. Editor's commentary. This is one of the few studies comparing push-dose epi with push-dose phenylephrine head-to-head, and they found push-dose epinephrine to have a slightly greater impact on blood pressure, but also have a higher incidence of dosing errors, even though they were using premixed syringes. The evidence for using push-dose pressors outside of the operating room is building. I have used them several times peri-intubation myself. But the value of having a pharmacist mix up the medication or using a pre-mixed, pre-labeled syringe simply cannot be emphasized enough. Abstract number eight, low tidal volume ventilation for emergency department patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis on practice patterns and clinical impact by Demonin et al. And this is in critical care medicine. So low tidal volume ventilation or tidal volumes less than eight cc's per kilogram is a key component to lung protective strategies for patients with ARDS. And in that population is shown to be associated or actually really it's proven to improve clinical outcomes. Despite this, adoption has been relatively slow. Some may say that this is an ICU problem. And that's no doubt true. It's definitely an ICU problem. But the authors make two relatively compelling counterpoints that highlight why it can be an ED problem too. First, is this little thing called boarding, and that any ICU problem becomes an ED problem when the patients are in the ED for a long time. Sad, but fair. Second, what we do in the ED has momentum. So when we start an antibiotic, that antibiotic is likely to be the one that's continued. Same with fluids. When we start LR and S, that's the fluid that's likely to be continued. We just talked in the last paper about, or two papers ago, that when we start thiamine, it tends to be continued, and when we don't, it doesn't. The same is true with low lung volume or low tidal volume lung settings on a ventilator. If we start them, 
then there's evidence in the literature that suggests those are continued on. And if we don't start them, there's plenty of evidence that it takes them a long time to convert over to that. So I think that if you know we're interested in giving our patients the best shot at survival, it's reasonable for us to adopt this proven strategy where appropriate. The authors here conduct a systematic review and meta-analysis to look at two things in particular. One, how lung tidal volume has changed in the ED over the past decade for patients who are invasively ventilated. And two, if ED-based low tidal volume ventilation is associated with better clinical outcomes in terms of length of stay, the development of ARDS, or mortality. They identified 21 total studies that met their inclusion criteria. Almost all were retrospective, and some of them, like 10 really, only had abstracts available for review. 10 had tidal volume data only, so they only told us like what was going on, and 11 of them had actual clinical outcome data. The total in was large, 13,000. The quality of evidence, and I think you'll be able to guess this based on what I just said, overall was rated as? Very high. Excellent. excellent pristine. No, very low. So, yeah, not even, they, they couldn't even pull a moderate. They out couldn't of their even hat. pull a low, it was very low. <laughs> I think they said low, but they could not get moderate or, you know, anything like that. There were no high quality studies. So, what did they find? Low tidal volume ventilation was associated with shorter lengths of stay, ICU length of stay, and ventilator free days. There was a hint towards improved mortality, but this was marginal and required discounting of some of the outlier papers. And again, this is in the ED. I cannot take the pooled findings of retrospective low-quality data too seriously, okay? So I don't think we can, you know, make too much of that. For me, the most interesting finding was simply the reporting of what tidal volumes look like over time in emergency departments. And basically, the authors plot the mean tidal volume used in each study, again, of ED patients who are mechanically ventilated over time. And they observe the mean tidal volume decreasing from a starting of 9 milliliters per kilogram in 2009 down to 6.5 in 2018. And that's the most recent year of data that was analyzed, suggesting that at least among EDs that do research, tidal volumes are dropping, that there's some translation to the bedside from those ARDSnet trials that show that low lung volumes have improved clinical outcomes. And that's a good thing. I really don't have a lot more to take from this, be aware that low tidal volume ventilation is probably the best practice for patients at risk for ARDS, which is most people in the emergency department who are getting mechanically ventilated, and that your colleagues in EDs, at least at forward-thinking EDs around the country, are clearly moving in this direction. And if you're not, you probably should get on the bus. Editor's commentary. This systematic review and meta-analysis of ventilator volumes in the ED for patients invasively ventilated shows that the mean tidal volumes used has been decreasing over the past decade, which is likely reflecting knowledge translation from clinical trials to the bedside. The authors found that decreased lung tidal volumes in the ED was generally associated with better clinical outcomes, but the quality of the underlying evidence for that was very low. Quick take. Abstract number nine. Determinants of pyelonephritis onset in patients with obstructive urolithiasis. This is by Abitaye et al. from Urologia. Obstructive pylo, aka pus under pressure, can lead to very severe complications, including bacteremia, sepsis, renal or perirenal abscesses, renal scarring, and dysfunction. Management includes both antibiotics and drainage. 
And basically, in this paper, the authors aim to see if there are any specific patient-level factors or variables that are associated with the development of acute pyelonephritis in the setting of an obstructing stone. It's a good question. They describe the methods as being retrospectively prospective. Although it yes. looks to be all retrospective to retrospectively me. Retrospectively prospective. That's a quote. Right. That's what I they say. I feel like that's from Zoolander. No, it's a retrospectively <laughs> prospective identification of patients in the ED with an imaging-proven stone. Cases were then deemed to be obstructive pyelonephritis if any two of the following were met. If the patient had a fever, if they had flank pain or CVAT, or if they had a positive urine culture. CVAT. I see. It's a strange case identification strategy. And it's also really unclear to me in the very short method section if this was at the index visit or at a follow-up visit, or if they've honestly, it was really difficult to tell. But they describe data on 120 patients, 17 or 14% of which were classified as having obstructive pyelonephritis by having two of those three aforementioned things. Then they looked at lots of candidate variables, including different vital signs, lab values, and imaging findings, specific imaging findings, and report that diabetes, an elevated CRP, a large stone greater than 5 millimeters, dilation of the renal pelvis, perirenal fat stranding, and positive nitrites on the UA were associated with the development of obstructive pylo, while things like white count and elevated creatinine, multiple stones, and frank pyuria were not. Now that is like you're going to have to go back to medical school to figure out how to make that a coherent pathophysiologic mechanism. All they did here, right, was they just looked at variable presence in one patient population for, they didn't, you know, try to see if these things auto-correlated with each other, you know, which they couldn't do. There's only 17 cases, but this is just really weird. You know, if you enrolled 15 more cases, maybe all these things would flip. (laughs) You know, like I have absolutely no idea. It's a small number of cases. It's also really unclear to me if their case identification strategy is accurate. If those people really had a, they didn't look and see if they got a procedure or something like that. You know, they didn't do anything. I'm not sure we can learn much here. Definitely can't learn about what independent predictors might help us figure out who's going to develop. And that's too bad because that's it, it is, you know, this comes up a lot. You know, you get somebody who comes in with uh, obstruction of some form and there's a little bit of dirtiness in their urine and they're not too sick and you're cons- and you, you know, don't know what to do. Honestly, you know? this is one of those papers for me that, you know, highlights again sort of the value of sort of listening to a program like EMA because in the abstract, none of these flaws are very apparent. They yeah. kind of give some risk factors and things. But when you dive in a little bit, you start to realize like this paper has some major problems and they're too major. Too major. Yep. Editor's commentary. Although the authors of this study aim to give us Interesting information about high-risk features that might predict the eventual development of obstructive pyelonephritis in the emergency department among patients with a stone, I think flaws in case identification, unclear methods, make meaningful conclusions impossible in this small number of patients. Abstract number 10, a clinical decision aid to discern patients without and with, not with and without, but without and with, Mid-facial and mandibular fractures that require treatment. The Reduction 2 study, a prospective multisantra cohort study by Rosema et al. And this is in the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery. 
the official publication of the European Trauma Society. So this is a paper I've been waiting for for a while. This is the reduction to study, and then the acronym turns into Reducing Unnecessary CT for Maxillofacial Injury. I like it. Basically, it's an attempt to derive clinical decision aids that would reliably exclude mid-face or mandibular fractures that require active treatment. And they define active treatment as meaning that the patient needed some form of a reduction, either open or closed, as compared to those patients who only required conservative management. And conservative management, I'll go into in, in a little bit. In theory, then, patients who were ruled out by decision aid would not necessarily require a CT scan. It was quite a study, really. It's a prospective evaluation of just under 1,000 adult patients who presented to four centers in the Netherlands who had facial trauma. They trained their physician staff on how to perform a structured exam for facial fractures, mid-face and mandible for facial fractures. This involved 14 individual findings for the mid-face and 15 for the mandible. They then had these providers fill out a scorecard indicating whether each of the 29 elements was present, absent, or not able to be assessed. Pretty big effort. Patients then got imaging, usually a CT scan, but there were some other cone beam CTs and stuff like that were done, to evaluate for fracture. It's not clear if absolutely everyone had a gold standard imaging in this study. Finally, when a fracture was identified, they consulted with OMFS, the oral maxillofacial surgery, or uh, otolaryngologist, and those physicians indicated whether they would be pursuing an active treatment or conservative treatment regimen. And again, active treatment was some form of reduction with or without subsequent stabilization, like with plating or whatever. You didn't have to have that. And conservative management was defined as consisting of such things as analgesics, avoiding nose blowing, soft, non-chewing diet, and or watchful waiting. The authors report on individual test characteristics for each of those 29 physical exam findings. And more importantly, they derive these two decision aids, one for mid-face facial fractures and one for mandibular fractures. Again, 993 patients enrolled. Most of them had mid-face injury, but 300 of them had mandibular injury. There's some overlap there. 339 of the total had a mid-face fracture, of which 74, 22% required active treatment versus the mandibles in which there were 66 mandible fractures and 56%, so much higher fraction of them required um, an active treatment. I won't go over all the 29 findings and their individual test characteristics, but I do want to highlight just a couple. First, the tongue blade test, where you stick the tongue blade in, have them bite down, was only 75% sensitive for mandibular fractures. Pretty specific, but it was only 75% sensitive, so missed one in four mandibular fractures that required active treatment. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was subjective malocclusion was 90% sensitive and 64% specific for mandibular fracture, while objective malocclusion was more specific at 77%, but not as sensitive at 68%. So just something to consider. The derived decision aids were as follows. For a mid-face fracture requiring active treatment, these were the elements, facial depression, epistaxis, ocular movement limitation, palpable step off, and objective malocclusion and or tooth mobility or avulsion. 
those were there's like six criteria. They're I think you know relatively intuitive. If patients had none of those, or one of those was 99% sensitive for fractures, but only 39% specific, which is not terrible. You know, 40% specificity for something like that is not terrible. For mandibular fractures, the decision aid was mouth opening limitation, objective mouth opening limitation, jaw movement pain, objective malocclusion, and again, that tooth mobility or avulsion. Sensitivity for that decision aid was also, well, that one was actually 100% sensitive and it was 38% specific. I like this study. There's a lot of work to be done before accepting these decision aids. There's no question about it. And the, the description of how the decision aid was derived is a little wonky, but obviously we would need external validation. And then we really need a lot more specification about some of these terms like epistaxis. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean the person's ongoing bleeding there or they say that I had a little drop of blood because that would change how useful or non-useful this is. We need somewhat cleaner definitions of what active treatment entails. For example, a couple of the misses were actually nose fractures where all they did is kind of push the nose over later. And they're like, well, that was active treatment because we did something, but it didn't require surgery or anything like that. I'm not sure if those are true misses. And then conversely, conservative treatment in this case was you can't blow your nose, Right. You have to eat a soft, non-chewing diet. Like, is that really that conservative? That's a pretty aggressive, conservative treatment. So I think there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be worked out before we start sort of taking this in. Still, you know, I think that we've seen an incredible increase in the number of CTs ordered for people who got punched in the face who otherwise, you know, have some swelling but look okay. And I think that this is a good first attempt to try to say, hey, we can figure this out through either decision aids or some sort of clinical judgment that some of these people don't need scans. So I applaud the effort, even though the ultimate findings can't be taken to the bedside. I don't think right now. Editor's commentary. This is the first attempt I'm aware of to develop a decision aid that might exclude significant facial fractures that require active treatment. The resultant decision aids were very sensitive for mid-face and mandibular fractures requiring treatment and moderately specific. The rules will require extensive external validation before changing practice. Abstract number 11. Efficacy of Ketorolac in the Treatment of Acute Migraine Attack, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this is by Neurothera et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So over the years, over the course of my career, many, many different medications have been tried to treat acute migraine. They've been studied, different classes, different forms of administration. We've tried all of it, right? And they all seem to be okay at the end of the day. Although ketorolac is one of the recommended abortive agents for a migraine, individual trials examining its effect have yielded pretty mixed results overall. So here, the authors perform a systematic review and meta-analysis of available trials on the topic. They identify 13 randomized control trials comparing either IV or IM ketorolac to other agents for migraine treatment, including a total of just under 1,000 patients recruited both from the emergency department and sort of a headache clinic type of setting. In total, among these 13 trials, there were basically seven different comparators. So it's like ketorolac versus phenothiazines, metoclopramide, sumatriptan, dexamethasone, sodium valproate, caffeine, and diclofenac. 
And then what they do in this paper, the paper is actually quite long. They break down the result by separating out each active comparator. So it's like, how well did it work against this one? You know, and within all that, and if you look at the whole paper within each comparison, essentially they found no differences in outcomes. At pain intensity at an hour, recurrence of headache, ability to return to work, need for rescue medications, or adverse effects. So, you know, the Katorolac worked just about as well as everything it was tested against. So by definition, then, doesn't that mean that everything works as well as everything else? Yes, but wait for it. There were a few exceptions in that Katorolac worked better at one hour. They looked at a bunch of different endpoints, too. Then sumatriptan and dexamethasone had less adverse events than phenothiazines and outperformed sodium valproate in just about every outcome that was assessed. So there were some subtle differences between the different comparators. They present a lot of data, a lot in this paper. But at the end of the day, I think the strength of the findings is limited by the fact that within each separate comparison, there's not that much data, right? It was like a thousand patients overall, but once you slice it and dice it into seven different pieces, in fact, one of them only had 18 patients in it, you know, like one little comparator. And the inclusion criteria or definition of migraine varied from study to study. So, you know, hard to lump them all together when this ends up being more of a systematic review than a meta-analysis. I think that's right. And because of that, they were really unable to perform most of the meta-analysis that they had really hoped to do because in addition to these problems of small slices, also the trials didn't have the level, the granular level of data that they needed to do these meta-analyses, and some of the trials didn't even report on a lot of the outcomes they had of interest. So they kind of conclude this paper saying that it's a bit of a meh, which is like all these migraine papers, though. It's the evidence is inadequate to support or oppose the use of Ketorolac for migraine as a first agent. And sadly, that's probably as accurate as we're going to get. commentary. In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors examined the use of Ketorolac as an abortive agent for acute migraine headache compared against seven other agents. And unfortunately, the data was not adequate to either support or oppose its use as first line. Like most other agents evaluated, it seems to work sometimes, kind of. Abstract number 12, outpatient and oral management is suitable for infants 60 to 90 days old with urinary tract infections at low risk of bacteremia by Hernandez Boo, who gets the monthly award for the Rick... The Rick uh, Ducata monthly telling award everything you t- need to know in the title. Absolutely. Except they don't because they don't tell you the limitations of their study. But still the closest we have this month. That's right. They get the award. So hold on, but wait for the next one. <laughs> oh, if, okay. All right. All right. They get the they're they're the front runner at this point. But we got somebody apparently coming up from the rear. All right, good times. This is in the European Journal of Pediatrics, and this is a follow-up paper from a group in Barcelona who have been reporting on outcomes on young infants with UTI. And we've covered, you know, at least a few of their papers in the past. In this paper, the authors look at the special group of kids who are 60 to 90 days old who have confirmed urinary tract infection. There are a few key background points. First is that UTI is the most common cause of serious bacterial infections in kids in this age group. Second, most treatment guidelines suggest admitting kids in this age group with UTI, even if they don't appear ill. 
Third, previous work has shown that most kids in this age group with UTI do not have bacteremia. Okay? So at least in theory, maybe they don't need to be admitted. And fourth, kids in this age group have been and can be treated with oral antibiotics without a high risk of decompensation under certain circumstances. That's one of the things they've shown in the past, particularly that they're at low risk for complications if they are not ill-appearing and they have low inflammatory markers like things like procalcitonin or, or white blood cell counts. At this hospital, they changed their suggested treatment algorithm and recommended discharging kids 60 to 90 days old from the ED on cefixamine, which is a third-generation cephalosporin, if they had a UTI and otherwise had those low-risk features. Patients with high-risk features were recommended to be admitted. And they did this several years ago. Look, I think it was, I didn't write it down, but either 2014 or 2016. I think it was 2014. Low-risk children, again, were those who appeared well. They had, for the definition of this paper, a procalcitonin of less than 0.7, and they had anatomically normal GU systems. So they weren't people that had surgery and weird stuff like that. The study itself was a retrospective chart review with very limited methodology. They report on 105 infants in this age range from their hospital. 31 of them had high-risk features. Procal was high or they looked sick or whatever. And all of those were admitted. Four of those 31, so 12%, had positive blood cultures. So that sort of validates probably, you know, admit people with high-risk features. 74 of the children met all the low-risk features, and the majority of those had a fever. 75% of those were discharged home. 25% went off book and admitted them anyway for whatever reason. It's fine. And none of those, whether they were admitted or discharged, had positive blood cultures. Okay, so none. It's a little confusing, but they state that they followed up all the children, but then they sort of report that only 74% of them were seen in a clinic afterwards. It's a little unclear, and it's retrospective. It's a little unclear how they followed all of them up. And it does appear that four of them that were discharged home were subsequently hospitalized. And they say that that was due to intolerance of the oral antibiotics. Kid was throwing up or whatever. I don't know. And they don't specify that. But it wasn't a perfect strategy. Not everybody did great. It looks like four out of the 75 ended up getting admitted. They state that, again, none of those four had bacteremia and none of those four had complications during their hospitalizations. So I'm not 100% sure what's going on. Ultimately, they conclude that the patients at low risk are safe to be managed, at least as a first step, on oral antibiotics as an outpatient. And that's it. That's the whole point of this study. It's, you know, 74 kids, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm not about to start advocating for this. I think the numbers here are really, really small, and the follow-up's not great, and the basic chart review methods leave, you know, a tremendous amount to be desired. Still, the authors cite that some new European guidelines are moving in this direction and at least giving the option for discharge in 60 to 90 days for kids with UTI who otherwise look well. And so we may, you know, be hearing about this from our admitting pediatricians. And that's sort of why I include it. You know, you get a you know 10-week-old that comes in with the UTI, a little bit febrile, but otherwise looks great, has low inflammatory markers. It may not be unreasonable to communicate with that pediatrician and come up with some sort of shared decision about whether the kid needs to be admitted. For me right now, I'm probably admitting most of these children, but if they came back and sort of pushed back on that and offered some, some really reliable outpatient stuff, know that it's not totally insane to 
to consider discharging those yeah, kids on I, a. I think a, for me, I'm also thinking that you know if these guys, because th- this group is pretty well respected, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm surprised the methods were so scant on this one. We've done a few papers on them that are usually rock solid. I think they know? had a database that they did for many years that really was rigid and all this kind of stuff. So they got really good data in. This is sort of like, hey, we changed our policy. What happened? Yeah, like a little pre-post kind of a thing. Yeah, whereas the other thing was really strong research methods. Yeah, I get that. But, you know, I think that probably just due to the fact this group is so respected, this paper probably will cause some European, at least, guidelines to change. And then maybe we'll get an influx of a bunch of new data of people doing this. So, you know, within the next year, even if they start to change it quickly, we might have a lot more real world experience with this practice. And then maybe we could change things here. Edit this commentary. This is a fairly limited retrospective chart review of children 60 to 90 days with proven UTI with low risk features. That is, they are well appearing and with normal procalcitonin. And it suggests that outpatient therapy with a third generation cephalosporin and close follow up is safe and effective. The conclusions are based on a very small number of children with a high number of loss to follow up or apparent loss to follow up. I would not recommend changing practice on the basis of this study. However, it is reasonable to consider this information with discussing such a case with your admitting pediatrician. Abstract number 13. Femoral artery Doppler ultrasound is more accurate than manual palpation for pulse detection in cardiac arrest. Rick Bucato Award for the paper that tells you what's up. I get you. I hear you, bud. So this is uh, by Cohen et al. in Resuscitation. This one is actually, although identified in our own search, also sent to us by the senior author mm-hmm. of the paper, Dr. Dan Rolston. And, and it was confusing because it was sent to us and put in our file. And we already had it. And we already had it in yeah. our file. And then I'm like, wait, are these two different? Because they look, that's... the way our system works, when they're sent to us, they get uploaded into our folders in yeah. a certain way versus our search. And so they look a little, very similar, but slightly yeah. different in terms of the way they're formatted. And we but were confused just for a good number you, of Apparently, moments. that discussion we had about sending in your papers and what we do with the search strategy had some value, because yeah. here it is. And I actually had a couple of nice emails with Dr. Ralston about this paper. So, well, I'm going to go and say that it didn't have value because it got in there anyway. Well, but the emails. I had some <laughs> nice emails now. Oh, in my okay. Inbox. All right. So during CPR, we pause every two minutes to do a pulse check. But that pulse check and feeling a pulse can be difficult due to the stress of the situation, a patient's body habitus, lots of different things, right? I mean, oftentimes you're sitting there, it's very, you're like, is that my pulse? Is that the patient's pulse? It's a stressful situation. And the authors here state that arterial Doppler ultrasound might be better at detecting a pulse in cardiac arrest, which that makes sense to me, but further state that something called, and this wasn't in the title, so that asterisk of the Rick Bucata Award, you got to think about that measuring something called the peak systolic velocity, okay? Which PSV. They, yeah, they, that's right, the PSV. They say it's just right on the screen right there. I'll take their word for it that the number comes up. Might have additional value and thus perform a study really testing out this theory. So this is a prospective, cross-sectional, partially blinded diagnostic accuracy study on a convenient sample of cardiac arrest patients who also had arterial lines placed, femoral arterial line, which is what they do there in their cardiac arrest patients, as some sort of a gold standard. The manual pulse palpation was done, looked like by the treating physician, a hand on the, you know, the, the femoral artery, whatever it was, and the ultrasound was performed by a separate team. Okay, And the ultrasound probe, they put in the inguinal canal on the other side, 
and they turned the volume down so you couldn't hear the Doppler and look like they kind of hid the screen. So the treating team was blinded to what that ultrasound showed, although they weren't blinded to what the arterial line showed, obviously, I suppose. The presence of a pulse was treated as a dichotomous variable in all methods of assessment. Pulse, yes or no, by feeling it, by the ultrasound, by this, you know, PSV. Data included a total of 213 pulse checks on 54 patients. A median age was 81 years and 67% were male. The outcome of interest was accuracy, right? So that was total positives plus total negatives over total number of pulse checks. Accuracy. They found that the Doppler ultrasound had a higher accuracy than manual palpation, 95% versus 54% for detecting any pulse which is not that surprising that the ultrasound Doppler could see like the tiniest of little pulse that was there. But the, then... But the detection, the manual, just to restate, the manual detection was only 54% sensitive for any... For any pulse. On the A-line. That's right. But what they did, in my mind, they actually asked a really interesting question, which was looking at sort of the different modalities in terms of accuracy when the blood pressure was above 60. Yeah. And when it was below 60, right. right? This is what they considered to be a sustainable blood pressure where you actually could stop chest compressions. And because it's one that where you're supposed to be able to, generally speaking, feel a pulse at the femoral artery, right? That's right. So this is where you could see Doppler might fail you if you were just using Doppler, right? Because you might see a Doppler pulse, but the patient's still really hypotensive, actually. Right. So you'd say, okay, there's a pulse. Yeah. Let's stop doing CPR when the person actually would benefit from CPR. So incorrectly stopping compressions. Right. But to really understand what's going on here. Basically a false positive pulse. Yes. Good way of putting it. So now they add in this thing called peak systolic velocity. And Dr. Rolson, I kind of like sent him a note like saying, I don't totally understand this. I'm not sure I still totally understand it, to be honest. But he sent me back some nice examples of it. He said, you know what, he said, Sanjay, he said, just tell it to the audience. They'll get it. They're a lot smarter than you. Yeah. it's So I'll, I'll tell you, he gave me an example where he said, in a hypotensive septic patient, the PSV is actually very high because the heart is squeezing lots of blood through a vasodilated vessel. And then when you start a presser or vasoconstrictor specifically, then the PSV goes down even though the blood pressure goes up. Yeah, I get it. There you go. Yeah. So, so all, the, all the other people get it too. There's, there's, there's no, there's no issue here. I'm happy if everybody listening yeah. gets it. But the relationship between this PSV and blood pressure has not been previously studied in cardiac arrest patients, right? Where they're already getting a bunch of epi and stuff like that. So, you know, is there an impact there? So their first finding is they found a strong correlation between the two. Their Spearman correlation coefficient was 0.89. And they made a rock curve and found the optimal cut point for correlating between PSV and a blood pressure greater than 60 was 20 centimeters per second. Like I said, when you look at the screen, I actually did look at the screen. It's just a little peak that comes up. And when that thing hits above 20, they're saying that should tell you that not only is there a Doppler measurable pulse, but it's probably generating a blood pressure over 60. Does that make sense? Yep. Got it. So the accuracy for detecting a systolic blood pressure greater than 60 was best when using this PSV greater than 20 centimeters per second, where they had an accuracy of 91.4% versus 77.6% for the Doppler because of those false positives and things like that. Right. So this is data from a single site. 
obviously it needs some validation. Their PSV number that they came up with should be tested in other places and see if this thing works. Right. All the ultrasounds were performed by people with ultrasound training, right? It wasn't the doc. And we also don't know how the time of the pulse check, everything else would be impacted if you're one doc running a code and you also have to get this probe lined up right to measure the PSV accurately and, put and stuff. Put A-line in, yeah. do that. <laughs> so we don't know what it would look like in the real world, but this concept of using this thing, I'd never heard of before. It seemed really interesting and it worked well in their sample. So I won't be surprised if other groups now try to test this thing out as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make about this PSV thing. I do like PSV Eindhoven, the, the football club, but I think for me, it's sort of, there are two sort of things that really pop out of this one. One, just how bad manual palpation is, which is, you know, concerning because <laughs> that's what we use. And then the second, that false positive thing, you know, that using just the ultrasound or whatever, you know, the accuracy was only 77%. So I think that that's kind of interesting. If you're going to use the ultrasound and that Doppler without some measure of ejection or whatever it is, be aware that you could be withholding CPR in somebody who has a very poor pulse or a very poor blood pressure. So I think those two things by themselves are really, really interesting. And whether this PSV thing ends up being the thing that differentiates it or not, yeah, I think I agree with you. It needs more validation, but it's pretty interesting. Editor's commentary. In this single-site study, the authors found that manual palpation was not great at detecting pulses during a cardiac arrest, and although Doppler is much more sensitive, it will likely detect a pulse even when the blood pressure is not adequate and thus might lead to premature stopping of chest compressions. They examined the peak systolic velocity as an alternative, which correlated well with blood pressure in their cohort and had improved accuracy at a level of greater than 20 centimeters per second, but this needs further validation before actually using it in a patient to determine the presence of ROSC. Abstract number 14. Are mental health and substance use disorders risk factors for missed acute myocardial infarction diagnoses among chest pain or dyspnea encounters in the emergency department? Question mark. It's a good question. It's a good question. And it's one posed by Adam Sharp et al. And it's one that is... Not entirely answered. In Smart the, researcher. In the annals of, this is this paper. So this is in the annals of emergency medicine. It's a great, complicated study by very smart people. So I'll start with that. I think the basic question is, are we blowing off patients with mental illness in the evaluation of chest pain? You know, when they come in saying, I have chest pain and, you know, my teeth hurt and everything else. And are we blowing them off to the point that they're having a high risk of missed MIs? obviously a great question. The authors look at the Kaiser Southern California data set using a two-pronged approach. And that's where the study right at the beginning <laughs> gets difficult. They use a look-back approach and a look-forward approach. In the look-back approach, they start with people who had a diagnosed MI, then they look backwards in their record for 30 days to see if they had a treat-and-street visit with a chief complaint of chest pain or dyspnea. If they did, they called that visit a missed MI. That's an overly sensitive definition. There's no doubt that you know not all of those were missed MIs, but whatever, we're just going to leave it and we're going to accept that for now. They then look for the presence or absence of mental health disorders between those patients who, again, had a confirmed MI, who had a missed MI as well, compared to those patients who had a confirmed MI but did not have a missed MI. 
The look forward approach starts with people who presented with chest pain or dyspnea and follows them out for 30 days to see how many ended up with a MI diagnosis within the next 30 days. And if they did, then that index visit was considered a missed MI. We good? Yeah. And that's the one that is kind of more relevant, right? Well, that's, that's the like, one that's like prospective. That, yeah. that seems like, are those we are missing an MI see. when we see them? The, right. Those are the people you see, and presumably you could do something different and alter their course. The yeah. other ones are people who've you already missed been missed, and yeah. they're showing up through the got door it. in the back end. I got it. Okay. So anyway, then what they do is they look at the patients in the cohort that we're seeing, and they see if the missed MI rate, and this is the look forward technique, the rate of missed MI was higher for people that had mental health disorders versus those that did not have mental health disorders. For the look back analysis, they started with 45,000 Kaiser patients with confirmed MI and found 500, a little over 500, who had a chest pain ED visit within the 30 days prior. So 1.3%. Those are the missed MIs. Patients in the confirmed MI group with mental health disorder were more likely to have a missed MI at 1.8% than those who did not have a mental health disorder. They had it at 1.1%, which was statistically significant. This was true for patients with, more specifically, anxiety disorder, mood disorder, schizophrenia, and substance abuse. So in the look back view, it looks like mental health disorders are a risk factor for missed MI. On the look forward, however, the results are different. There were 300,000 plus chest pain patients treated and released, of which 500, just a little over 500 or 0.2%, had a confirmed MI within 30 days. However, for patients with mental health conditions, the rate was 0.2%, which is exactly the same rate as those who did not have mental health conditions, 0.2% missed MI rate. So this offers a confusing set of observations. First is that consistent with other look-back type studies, mental health disorders are associated with an increased odds of MI. That's been demonstrated using that sort of retrospective start with the MIs and look-backward methodology. But on the more prospective analysis, which reflects an intervenable moment, you're at the bedside, you're seeing someone with MI, you have the choice to blow them off versus not blow them off, it turns out that their missed MI rate is exactly the same. So conceptually, it's actually difficult to square these two contradictory findings. And it may have to do with the fact that the entire study is based on sort of big data that may not be very nuanced. It may be that patients with mental health disorders endure their missed MI at home and do not represent with an MI. So you say, oh, this is nothing. Don't worry about it. They go home, they complete their MI, but they stay home the whole time. They don't you know, sort of drop dead or anything. And they just experience a, a, you know, a missed MI essentially. And then whereas patients without mental health, maybe they come back. And so there's a, you know, that sort of counterbalances that. Could whole you, thing. And I'm trying to sort of craft a message here, you know, like a learning point for this. Is, is it fair to say that, you know, if you see a patient who was seen within the last couple of days for chest pain, obviously we'd always be worried about sort of the second visit, the bounce back or whatever. But and they had a history of mental health disorder to then sort of really have your, you know. I don't think that I, this methodology, I don't think allows you to say that kind of thing. Basically, you've got this problem, right? It could be that 
you know, the again, the mental health folks don't bounce back as frequently. And so that artificially makes their missed MI rate look low. Alternatively, super user status might inflate the risk of having a previous visit and the chance of being coded as having a mental health disorder, which could impact the look back findings. The authors basically conclude the same thing, saying, look, we've got some contradictory information and we really need to do more research into this phenomena, but they do not actually advocate for any specific practice change at the bedside because most importantly, in the look forward rate, the rate of MI is the same amongst those who has mental health disorders and those who do not. Editor's commentary. This is an interesting study examining how the rate of missed MI is affected by the presence of mental health disorders and substance abuse. The dual methodologies yield disparate results, with the more prospective look-forward approach failing to detect mental health disorders as a significant risk factor for missed MIs within 30 days. Abstract number 15. Length of stay outcomes in patients receiving ketamine sedation versus beer block anesthesia for procedural closed fracture reduction, a retrospective audit of pediatric emergency department patients. This is by Kwong et al. from Emergency Medicine Australasia. Forearm fractures account for about 20% of all pediatric fractures, and these are commonly reduced in the ED with procedural sedation, often with using ketamine. Another option to provide analgesia for reduction is a beer block, aka IV local anesthesia. And we saw this paper and we're like, this is pretty cool. And it hearkened me back to my days as I was talking about during the selection with Mike at the old county hospital in 1060, which was our old orthopedic unit. We used to do these a lot. We used to do beer blocks relatively frequently in adults. And I have never seen a beer block performed except on my own arm when I had hand surgery. Yeah. No, we used to do them in the ED almost every shift. Mm -hmm. We did these things all the time. I'm not sure what happened with the move to the new place. Honestly, we lost a lot of our good. We used to do a lot of orthopedics we probably shouldn't have back in the old hospital. But, uh, you know, there was some personnel shifts and stuff, and we kind of stopped doing that. they still do beer blocks all the time in our orthopedic evaluation and treatment area, which is where we send people. Once they've sort of had the normal ED stabilization, they go the next day to over there. And that's That's how they do a lot of reductions. So in case you, you know, have never seen one of these done or heard of one being done. It has nothing to do with the alcoholic beverage beer. It's spelled differently. It's B-I-E-R. And I read the whole history of the beer block and how when- It used to be spelled B-E-R and it was done with lots of alcohol. But they thought that that was not a good message, so they changed it to B-I-E-R. Yeah, there was all this controversy, actually, over Dr. Beer, who invented it, and it was originally shunned, and it was many years later. Anyway, so I thought I would just go over a quick how-to do a beer block for those of you who had never seen one or never heard of one. Step one, the patient does need to be on a monitor to look for signs of lidocaine toxicity. And then what you do is you insert a IV into a distal vein. Usually it's the dorsum of the hand. And you hold the patient's arm up for about a minute to esanguinate the arm. Some people also recommend doing sort of a bandage wrap, moving down the arm to help esanguinate the arm, largely exsanguinate it. And then with the arm still up and the blood still out, you inflate a blood pressure cuff, a pneumatic cuff, where you can actually control the pressure and see how high it's going to be with gauze underneath it to help a little bit of comfort to a level that is 75 millimeters of mercury above the patient's SBP. So that's pretty high. Pretty high. Go to like, it's very tight. There might and, be people you can't do that in. 
That's right. And there are there are in fact like double pneumatic cuffs that have two sort of tighteners on them. And if people do beer blocks a lot, are probably using one of those. We're not going to have access to one in the ED, and that's just sort of a backup, fail safe. Then what you do is oh, I see, because that, that's like if one pops or something, right. then you wouldn't lose all the light. That's you exactly have to do it all over. That's again. exactly right. And look at that. So, look, look at us learning. Yeah. Then you confirm the absence of the radial pulse. The limb will be pale at that point, and you inject. 0.5% lidocaine over three to five minutes. Now, this is one of the tricky things because you do have to dilute lidocaine down with normal saline. It comes at, you know, 1% lidocaine at a dose of three milligrams per kilogram at a max of 200 milligrams or 40 mLs. Then, three milligrams per kilogram max. Okay, so you're basically going 200 milligrams yep. for adults. For oh, adults. This is kids. So Yeah, this, this is kids and this one, which I have never right. done. Yeah. You know, I, I have done it several times in adults. Then you reduce the fracture, we'll do whatever you need to do. And then you wait 20 minutes, like total, the total cuff up time should be somewhere between 20 and 45 minutes. That's 25 past that's too long, less than 20, a little bit too short. And if done correctly, this will provide a painless and bloodless field as well. Now we're not really going to be using it for that, but surgeons do. That's one of the things they use beer blocks for. Makes sense. So the authors of this paper say the technique is used not infrequently in kids in Australia and describe their experience from three pediatric EDs in Victoria, comparing it to their experience with procedural sedation. They report on about 450 kids aged 3 to 18 years, 376 of them got ketamine and 73 got a beer block. The mean age of the patients that got a beer block was higher. 13 years versus eight years. And this makes sense because they do have to be cooperative and kind of understanding exactly what's going on. Their primary outcome of interest was post-procedural length of stay. And they said they did that to sort of eliminate some of the time to be seen by doctor and stuff like that. So, you know, from when the cuff went up or when you pushed the ketamine to when you got discharged, And they found this to be shorter in the beer block group, 97 versus 172 minutes, quite a bit shorter. Overall length of stay was also shorter, but the difference was a lot less, 288 minutes versus 339 minutes, right? So they're like, I'm not really sure where all that extra time savings went, but maybe- They had to find that double cuff. That's Maybe (laughs) it takes a really long time to set up for the beer block, or maybe you had to read about it or watch a video. I'm not exactly sure. My guess is that you could be set up to do it quick, but probably most places aren't, and so that's why- Certainly, if you're listening to this and have never done one, it's going to take you a really long time to do it. (laughs) Now, in terms of adverse events, in the beer group, one patient vomited and one patient had transient tingling of the lips. Versus in the ketamine group, remember there's about 375 patients in that group, 58 vomited, post-procedural vomiting. That's a lot. Four had transient partial airway obstruction. Four had emergency reactions. Mm. So they're kind of saying like, whoa, ketamine was pretty scary and does all this stuff. You know, beer block really was quite safe. That's a little, I'm willing to go, like, I usually think of ketamine 10% vomit rate. And this one's much higher than that. It's like 20, almost 20%. So that's too high. But I, you know, I'm willing to give you that 10% of people with ketamine might puke even after they go home. I'm not sure I'm willing to give 4% laryngospasm. That's just really high. I'm sorry, 1% laryngospasm. That's too high. For patients. Right, right. What, well, yeah. out of 300 though, right? Yeah. So 1%. Yeah. That's way higher than we normally see. We yeah. usually see studies of thousands of kids and there's like one. You know? This is all retrospective look too, right? Like so it, it could have been like an airway feel like this is by Dr. Beer at all. 
So there are some pretty big limitations to this paper, still including like a large difference in age between the two groups. Like maybe it's not that kids with a beer block go home faster, but just older kids go home faster, right? Because they that. were older. For me, that's like the biggest one here. And then the total length of stay difference being much smaller than the post-procedural length of stay difference may hint at some unrecognized confounding variable like setup time or learning time or who knows what. And importantly, this is really important, there's no information here at all on patient comfort, right? Pain during the procedure, procedural success rate, right? like was it, from a physician perspective, was one easier to do the reduction than another? So there's a lot of things there that are just not commented on in this paper at all. I think if you're going to try this, if you feel like it's going to be allowed in your ED and you can do it, know that the patient needs to be old enough to cooperate with the cuff and the procedure and be with it enough to vocalize potential signs of lidocaine toxicity if they came up. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors report that post-procedural length of stay was shorter and adverse events were less with beer block compared with procedural sedation when reducing pediatric forearm fractures. This is not a trial, and there may be some significant issues with confounding and selection bias, but is a good reminder that this is a real technique that could be considered in the right clinical environment on the right patient if you know how to do it. Also, don't forget about the option of a simple hematoma block. Quick take. Abstract number 16, this is a quick take, and it's manual reduction of incarcerated abdominal wall hernias, a feasible option during COVID-19 pandemic, a prospective study by Bularis et al. in the Surgery Journal. Surgery Journal. We Didn't never, you just do this paper? Again, this is one of these things, right? Like in our title- Literally last month. Last month, and we commented that I've never seen anything like that before. And that other paper was from Iran, something like that. Israel. Israel. That's Israel. Israel. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, so you know, we'd never previously done a paper on it. Now we we commented, and now we've got two. And the authors of this paper note that there have been only two other studies on it. That's what they say. So two out of the four studies that have ever been sort of on this topic have happened in the last. So if you've been if you've weeks. been an EMA subscriber for two months, you know half of everything there is to know on this. That's topic. right, and I don't know when the other two studies were. They could have been in the in the 1920s. So you know that's that's all there is to it. Anyway. The point here is that incarcerated abdominal wall hernias, when done emergently, carry more morbidity than elective repair. So if one can manually reduce the incarcerated hernia, we can at least theoretically eliminate the excess morbidity associated with the emergency surgery. Between 2018 and 2020, this single site in Greece attempted manual reduction in all hernia cases. The methods are not good, and it's really hard to tell if this was really structured as a prospective study or if it's really a review of a change in clinical practice that was prospectively done, but the data itself wasn't collected in a prospective manner. It's kind of hard to tell. My best guess is that they systematically evaluated all cases of incarcerated hernia, they gave them all IV toradol, and attempted manual reduction twice over 15 minutes, a process that they call Texas which is not something that Google agrees with. But anyway, uh, they call that taxes. They recorded the VAS before and after. And if the hernia went in and the VAS dropped substantially, the patients were considered to have been reduced. They were observed for a subsequent 12 to 24 hours and then discharged you know, home. Otherwise, they were taken to the OR for emergency repair. 
Patients were excluded if they had evidence of strangulation, peritonitis, or if the hernia was chronically irreducible but relatively painless. It's just, you know, you see these patients that have hernia out for the last 12 years. There were a total of 86 patients. Mean age was 70. 66% were successfully reduced, which is higher than the study from last month, which was more like 50%. Most inguinal hernias, 73% of them, most of the hernias were inguinal hernias for that matter, and most of the inguinal hernias were successfully reduced. Most of the femoral and incisional hernias were not successfully reduced, just for the record. Four cases were reduced clinically, but they continued to have pain, so they were taken to the OR, right? And this is like one of those cases where we worry like, oh, they had strangulation and you put it back in there and it's all bad. Turns out that none of those four had anything serious at all. They had things like omental infarction, but not gut infarction, like a little piece of omentum got caught up in there. And so they said that nothing bad happened to those people. No enterectomies were performed on that group. None of the other patients who were reduced had any serious complication or had the need for emergency surgery. So that's your study right there. Uh, the study is, is you know pretty limited. It's single site. It's totally unclear, like the previous study, how and how many patients they decided not to pursue this strategy because of the risk of strangulation. And personally, as an emergency physician, that's like something I really need to understand a little bit better. I mean, obviously, if it's necrotic and purple and stuff like that, that looks strangulated. But are there any other clues that the surgeons think is important to know about so that you don't go pushing on things that might be strangulated? But I will give them credit. They at least describe the reduction technique in a little bit more detail with this, you know, trying it twice with over 50 minutes after giving IV. Um, did I say tramadol? I think they, uh, did I say tramadol or toradol? They gave IV tramadol for what it's worth. I didn't even know that existed, but apparently in Greece, you can get it. Anyway, I think that this is well within our scope of practice to attempt manual reduction of, of suitable hernias. And we should just know that incarcerated inguinal hernias in particular seem to be amenable to this type of reduction. And for my dollar, it's you know good for us to give it a shot. Edit this commentary. This is a small single-site study demonstrating a fairly high success rate for manual reduction of incarcerated hernias. Providers still need to be cautious not to attempt reduction of strangulated hernias, but this paper doesn't give us any insight on how to identify them. Quick take. Abstract number 17. The 35 millimeter rule to guide pneumothorax management increases appropriate observation and decreases unnecessary chest tubes by Figueroa et al. from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. How about that as a Rick Bucata award? Not bad. So this one is a quick take is definitely at least showing for it, right? I think so. Yeah. Although it was once the rule that all cases of traumatic pneumothorax were managed with a chest tube, this practice has been brought into question, driven by the fact that as CT scanners get better and better, we diagnose smaller and smaller pneumothoraces. In late 2021, the Western Trauma Association issued a consensus statement about various aspects of pneumothorax management and recommendation number three, was that if CT pneumothorax was measured at less than 3.5 centimeters, observation and repeat imaging is preferred over chest tube placement. And for the record, we covered that recommendation that just a few months ago. Yes. So at the Medical College of Wisconsin, they changed their institutional policy on management of pneumothorax in 2017, basically saying this, cases where the CT had a pneumothorax of less than 3.5 centimeters, they were going to obs them instead of put in a chest tube. And basically, this paper is just a pre 
post paper about what happened after that institutional policy change. With the pre-period being between 2015 and 2016, so a year before, and the post-period being 2018 and 2019, the year after the policy change. Included all patients presenting directly to their ED, not transfers who may have had something done in an outside hospital, and excluded those who died within 24 hours, as well as patients who had a concomitant hemothorax. So this was just pneumothorax seen on CT. There were 266 total patients with data, 99 in the pre-period and 167 in the post. No differences in demographics, injury severity, or pneumothorax size between the two periods. Chest tubes were placed in 28% of patients in the pre versus 18% in the post. Compliance with the less than 3.5 centimeter guideline was actually similar across the two time periods at the four-hour mark, 91% of patients in the pre and 91.6 in the post, but where they diverged was at 24 hours, 82% in the pre-period versus 90% in the post compliance. No statistically significant changes in observation failure rates, hospital or ICU length of stay, complications, or mortality. And in those patients who failed observation, there was no significant physiologic deterioration. So this is observational data. We don't know why a decision was made to put a chest tube in some cases and not in others. But I think overall, it's just a good comment on safety of the approach and a nice follow-up to the paper with a recommendation that we covered within the last few months. Editor's Commentary In this retrospective pre-post study, the authors reported a decreased chest tube insertion rate with no change in clinical complication rate after instituting an observation-only policy for traumatic pneumothoraces less than 3.5 centimeters in size on CT. This appears to be a safe and procedure-saving approach to management. Abstract number 18, the association between the degree of fever as measured in the emergency department and clinical outcomes of hospitalized adult patients. This is by Mark Hewson et al., and it's in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And the first thing I'd like to do is scold the authors. They missed a golden opportunity to title this paper, Does Height Matter? And, you know, I like the topic, so I did it anyway, but that almost got you off the list, guys. Come on. If you have the opportunity to Height matter, size matter, anything like that, you got to put it in the title. Am I wrong? Am You're I wrong? Not wrong? I'm not wrong. All right. So we spent about six months of residency training talking about pediatric fever, right? And how the height of the fever used to matter, but it doesn't anymore since, since Prevnar and maybe the rate of rise of the fever. We know all sorts of stuff. About pediatric about, fever. I said pediatric yeah. fever. Like, for example, I know that 4% of patients with temperature over 40 degrees used to have bacteremia, and now that number is lower than that. I know that's been burned into my brain and all these kinds of things, right? What's the equivalent number for adults? Nobody has a damn clue. So we spent six months doing that with kids and about 14 seconds with adults. There's practically nothing in the literature that describes the association with height of fever and mortality in adult patients, particularly the temperature as measured in the ED, where I think it's actually maybe the most relevant. This is a retrospective EHR review of all patients who presented to a single site in Israel between 2015 and 2020 with a body temperature greater than 38 degrees and who were admitted for further evaluation. Demographic characteristics, ICD-9 comorbidities, vital signs, lab values, and hospital discharge diagnosis were extracted from the EHR 
without any apparent manual review. It was just whatever came, you know, was spewed out of the- Like a report. Like a report. Very well stated. The key outcome was 30-day all-cause mortality, which was determined by querying the Israeli Ministry of Health death database that somehow backlinks with their EHR. Got better systems out there than we do. There were 370,000 patients evaluated in the ED during this study period. Fever occurred in 8% of them, so about 30,000, of which over 20,000 were hospitalized. So 70% of adults with fever were hospitalized. The mean age was 68, 52% men. 80% of them were basically medical patients, 20% surgical patients. Overall mortality in this cohort was 12%. 12% of febrile adults died within 30 days, which is much higher than the overall mortality of patients who were admitted without fever, which was 2%. Really, I picked this paper for figure two, which I'm showing right now. No, I'm not showing it and it wouldn't help that much. But it's basically a graph of temperature against the odds of dying. And what it shows is that the relationship between maximal body temperature measured in the ED and mortality is flat from 38 degrees to 39.5 degrees, then rises rapidly from 39.5 degrees upward, such that after 40, after a temperature of 40 degrees Celsius, the odds of death are two and a half times higher than they are when the maximum temperature was 39 degrees. In easier to understand terms, the risk of death for a patient with a Tmax in the ED of 39 to 39.5 was 9.8%. For those with greater than 40 degrees centigrade, it was 24%. So massive increase in risk. It should be noted that relatively few people had a temperature that high. Only about 2 or 3% of the population of febrile patients had a temperature over 40, but that's the situation. The same relationship is seen between temperature and the need for ICU admissions or acute kidney injury, other outcomes that they looked at. So to the question, does height matter with respect to adults with fever? The answer is not really unless the height exceeds 40 degrees centigrade. So it does matter. But who's the, so there's just a threshold effect. It's like saying does height matter? In, yeah, it's a, but it's a huge, it doesn't matter too much until you hit 40. Then my point is I don't want people to t- go away going, oh, height matters. 38.2 is different than 38.7. I think that's important to understand, or yeah. 39.1. It doesn't matter until you get this very extreme temperature, and then it does. Edit this commentary. This single-site retrospective study demonstrates that fever greater than 38 degrees in the ED is associated with markedly increased mortality among hospitalized patients, but that the maximum temperature is not strongly associated with mortality unless it's greater than 40 degrees centigrade. Very high temperatures like this are associated with very high mortality and resource use. House of Medicine. Abstract number 19. Perceptions of respect from clinicians by patients in racial and ethnic minority groups with eye disease. This is by Hicks et al. from Gem Ophthalmology. So it has been shown that patients who feel that they are being treated with respect by their providers are more likely to report greater satisfaction with and compliance with the care that providers suggest that they follow. Now, as is true for many diseases out there, poor vision and blindness disproportionately affects people from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. And these authors here are ophthalmologists. So I think what they want to know is they're interested in this issue about respect. 
and patients' perception of being respected, but they isolate their cohort to patients with eye disease because that's what they do. They're ophthalmologists. That kind of makes sense. So what they did here was they used data from the National Health Interview Survey, which is a nationally representative sample of non-institutionalized adults in the United States, to basically ask questions of patients or participants to see how they feel about respect, if they are respected by their treating providers, and if this level of respect among patients with eye disease differs by patients who are in a racial or ethnic minority group. So let me just, I've done the NIH, I've used NIHS in research before. And so they're not saying, do eye doctors respect me? It's just overall doctors, and these are just happen to be patients with eye problems. That's exactly right. So it could be the ER doctor that disrespected them, not the ophthalmologist. Could be anybody. That's exactly right. So it does sort of branch out to large, and that is just the the pool they started with. Okay. So the study population included just over 5,000 individuals, 62% female, 21% from minority backgrounds. In their multivariable model, participants in racial and ethnic minority groups had a 23% lower odds of reported being treated with respect compared with non-Hispanic white patients. Patients over age 65 were more likely to report that they were always treated with respect by their clinicians compared with those aged 18 to 39 at an adjusted odds ratio of 2.2. For all patients, being asked about their opinions and beliefs about their medical care by their provider was associated with a 5.8 times higher odds of reporting being treated with respect. Can you just say the first part of that sentence one more time? I just want to try to really internalize it. Being asked. Right. So when they report, if they said, when I go see the doctor, they ask me about my opinions and my beliefs about their plan, about my health care. They just sort of are allowed to participate in the discussion. Just that question, that asking increased the odds of being reported that they were treated respectfully with respect. By almost six. Now, of course. A massive difference. Right. And of course, this is based you know, on a patient stating that this happened and there's no actual, it may well be that people who are respected sort of feel that that happened and then people who are disrespected feel that that didn't happen, even though maybe that, that did happen. But that's a really useful sort of, I think, tid. Yeah. And you can think about this another way, right? Among patients who reported that they were not always asked about their opinions and beliefs, of patients from a minority background and 73% of patients who were not from a minority background felt respected, compared with participants who said, no, they always ask me about my beliefs, where 91% of patients from a minority background and 95% of patients not from a minority background said they felt respected. Now, you're right. Maybe there's some recall bias and autocorrelation there, but if you're going to take something home, I think that's really it. Take something that you can bring to the practice. It's pretty high. Yeah. Ask people what their beliefs about their medical condition are and if they're on on the same page as you are. That's right. Now, they only looked at patients with eye conditions in this sample, but there are data from other studies, and they talk about some of them in discussions, say that these results would be similar regardless of what baseline condition you chose. So I think there's a nice take-home here. Feels very house of medicine-y to me that involving a patient, ask it, what do you think about what I just told you? It's a small thing, 
that may have a big impact on how they perceive you respected them as a human. Editor's commentary. In this nationally representative sample of patients with eye disease, the authors report that participants from racial and ethnic minority groups were less likely to feel respected by healthcare professionals. We need to be aware of this perception, and one valuable take-home from this paper is that regardless of background, asking patients about their beliefs regarding their health is a good way to dramatically increase patients' feeling of being treated with respect, which is something we all strive to do. Abstract number 20, assessment of implicit gender bias during evaluation of procedural competency among emergency medicine residents. This is by Ashley C. et al. in JAMA Network Open. And by way of full disclosure, part of that et al. is none other than yours truly, me, and Jenny Beck Esme. That's fine. That's another way to get covered on EMA. You know, you can either send us the paper or we can or just, write one ourselves. Or, or, or you just tack me onto the author list. No, actually, we rarely cover our own papers in here. Yeah, we very of, rarely yeah. do. This is, this is the, but this is a, an interesting We've one. Been this seeing, is a good one. Well, you know, the issue of gender bias against women physicians has received increased attention in recent years. There's no question. And pretty much every month, we see some abstracts coming through. And we're always like, is this the right one? But often it's like about you know, very technical stuff about publication bias or editor authorship. And we're like, eh, it's not quite right for EMA. So I'm glad that, you know, we did this paper and it got published so that we could do this. In emergency medicine, a recent observational study published in JAMA Internal Medicine, which made a lot of sense, is emergency medicine, but published in JAMA IM, demonstrated that female residents had a slower rate of milestone achievement on the new ACGME assessment scoring scheme compared to their male counterparts despite basically starting at similar baselines. A follow-up study using the entire ACGME dataset from 2014 to 2017 showed that female residents scored lower in procedural competency, in particular, as compared to their male resident counterparts. The question that emerged from these was whether there was actual implicit bias against women in the assessment process, namely, if an assessor sees a woman do the procedure they are more harsh in the assessment compared to a male proceduralist who does the exact same thing? Or alternatively, is it that training programs are more institutionally biased against female residents, which leads to lower milestone achievement? And that could be caused by other factors, including things like reduced opportunities for mentorship, less ability to get meaningful feedback, or to you know basically less role modeling and things like that. So things that aren't implicitly biased but rather structurally biased. Obviously, the mechanism generating the disparity influences any potential remediations. In this study, us authors sought to determine whether implicit bias, so basically, when I see a woman do a procedure versus a man, I always prefer the man, the, the men or score the man higher. We sought to determine whether that implicit bias had a specific role in assessment of procedural competency for emergency medicine residents. And it's, I think is a very clever design. Basically, we videoed 10 proceduralists, five women, five men, doing three different procedures, a central line, an LP, and a chest tube, from two video perspectives. One of the video perspectives we called gender identified. So you could just see the whole person's body and their face, and you could tell that they're a woman or a man. And then the other video was sort of a coned-in view onto their hands. We called that the gender-concealed one. You couldn't tell, and we had people wear gloves, so they didn't 
have you know evident manicures that might you know lead you to believe one's a man or a woman. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. We then had assessors, and these were recruited from basically the cord listserv, review all the videos and rate each proceduralist in random order using a standardized assessment tool called the global rating scale. And this global rating scale is from one to six, and it asks you to sort of assess the people along multiple dimensions. It's respect for tissue, time and motion, knowledge and equipment, instrument handling, flow of the procedure, and knowledge of the procedure. There were 51 assessors, 22 men and 29 women, and they reviewed all of the videos for each proceduralist, procedure, etc., and scored each one. They were blind, obviously, to the purpose of the study. And, you know, this was a tremendous amount of work, many hours of watching videos. So thank you to, to the reviewers. We then, and this is important, we calculate the gap between the gender revealed and the gender concealed scores for each procedure and determine if this gap was different between male proceduralists versus female proceduralists. So if this gap is different for men compared to women, that would indicate implicit gender bias. So what did we find? No gender-based differences. Gender evidence scores were slightly higher for both men and women compared to the gender-concealed scores. But again, same across both genders. So when you saw everything, the reviewers tended to rate everything a little bit higher, probably because they just saw things a little bit better. When we had the coned-in view, it was a little bit worse, but that didn't matter whether the proceduralist was a man or a woman. So what does it mean? Well, it means we did not find evidence of implicit gender bias. Now, I don't want to overstate the findings. This is a very limited study in that the assessors come from the volunteers from the cord listserv, including many program directors who may you know, be more systematically de-biased and probably do not reflect the true universe of assessors. Still, I think the results tend to suggest that implicit gender bias is less likely the culprit for the gender bias overall, and rather the culprit may be that residency training itself is structurally biased against women doctors because of fewer opportunities, fewer role models, competing life demands that play a more dominant role with you know, female residents. It also suggests that perhaps the more explicit and structured assessment tool like this global rating scale may play a role in reducing some of these sort of otherwise implicit biases when you give people like, you know, really more structured scoring schemes. Editor's commentary. In this study of procedural competence, we did not find any evidence of implicit gender bias in assessments of resident physicians. The results suggest that previously documented gender biases against women residents is more likely driven by other mechanisms, which might include fewer opportunities for constructive feedback or mentoring. Welcome to the June EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beck-Esme, and Jess is back. Hello, Jess. Hey, Jenny. How are you? Well, no. I mean, I'm fine. Whatever. (laughs) We all want to know how you are. I mean, listeners, we can have some gentle chit-chat at the beginning of this every month, but I mean, I know what you really want to know is how Jess is doing, because you guys have been contacting us and, you know, sending her your well wishes, and that's so marvelous. So, no one cares how I am. How are you? 
you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm holding up. I hit my halfway point. So I just switched over from what they considered the chemo light to now like the chemo heavy. Okay. You know, they take what they say what I'm taking is called the red devil. And now I know why. Ooh, it's, okay. Uh, yeah. It's a little rougher. It's a little rougher. Okay. Okay. But you know what? Look, I'm holding up and, you know, I'm looking forward to each day feeling a little bit better. And I only have three more chemo days left. Stop it. That's so exciting. I know. I have to think of it like that yeah, because it's, yeah. it's once every three weeks because this stuff is a lot harder. But mm -hmm. you know what? It's three more times. And I can do that. It's doable. You definitely can do three more times. I'm always a person who likes to have countdowns to things that I'm, like, yeah. that I'm not enjoying, even to the point where I have made you know the paper chains. Did you ever make paper chains to count down to a holiday or something when you were a kid? You know what? I didn't, but it's an adorable idea and I've seen it and I like it. Yeah, yeah. So you can make a, yours at this point now would be a very short paper chain because it would only have three links on it. But you know, <laughs> it is very satisfying to tear off the link and you're like one step closer to this thing that you don't like being over. Yeah. So you know what? That's my plan. I'm having surgery in July. So let's see how that goes. Okay. All right. And then you know what? We'll go from there. So it's okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, now everyone has the Jess update of the month. Jess is here. Jess is ready. Jess is here. Jess is ready. Should we dive into some papers? Let's do it. Why don't you start us? All right. Paper number one. Videographic assessment of tracheal intubation technique in a network of pediatric emergency departments. This paper is from the Videography in Pediatric Resuscitation Collaborative, or VIPER Collaborative where they gathered data from four emergency departments and they reported on tracheal intubation success, time of laryngoscopy, and occurrence of hypoxemia. As with any intubation study, you really want to know what they consider a single attempt, so you really know what you're dealing with. And here, a successful attempt was one in which an ET tube was successfully placed in the trachea prior to removal of the laryngoscope. They had data on roughly 500 patients and found overall first-pass success was 67%, and eventual success was 97%. Median duration of laryngoscopy was 35 seconds, and hypoxemia occurred in 15% of patients. Video was used in about half of the attempts, and it had no association with success or with incidence of hypoxemia. But attempts in which video was used for the entire procedure, rather than direct, were a little bit longer, with a median time of about six seconds longer, but who knows if that was really an issue. Now, Keep in mind, this is only observational data, but video wasn't clearly better or clearly worse than direct laryngoscopy in this pediatric study. You know what video is better for? It's better for the attending who is watching yeah, the resident. That is what video is better for. Because otherwise you're just standing there and you're like, what do you see? What, what do, do you see? see? <laughs> what do you see? Yeah. All right. Paper number two. Thunderclap Headache Syndrome Presenting to the Emergency Department an International Multicenter Observational Cohort Study. Thunder, 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 thunderclap. Ho! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Jenny. I think I've been waiting years to say that. I really have. Oh, my gosh. All right, good. I did it. Anyway, this paper looked at the proportion of patients with serious pathology presenting with thunderclap headaches. They defined thunderclap as a severe headache of immediate or almost immediate onset and peak intensity. Out of the 4,500 headache patients screened, 14% had a thunderclap onset. Almost two-thirds of them got a CT scan, of which 11% had serious pathology. That's pretty high. Mm -hmm. 
This included 3.5% with subarachnoid hemorrhage for a total of 5.5% with any intracranial bleed. All of the subarachnoid hemorrhages were found on non-contrast head CTs. No patients with a normal CT who went on to have an LP or a CTA had a bleed. Now remember, and it's good to know, but remember, this study did not address onset timing. So for more on the LP, no LP discussion, listen to the May 2020 MRAP segment on subarachnoid hemorrhage, no LP. The take-home here is that thunderclap headaches are worrisome, and you should not hesitate to order a non-con head CT. Excellent. I don't think I ever did hesitate to order a non-con. <laughs> but, you know, as we always say, I really like a paper that supports what I'm already doing. Well, you know, the thing is that they said two-thirds of them got a CT. What about the other one-third? Yeah. Like, were you just like, nah, I'm not worried. That doesn't sound too bad. Like, come on. <laughs> paper number three, evaluation of direct oral anticoagulant use on thromboelastography in an emergency department population. Thromboelastography, or TEG, is one of the new viscoelastic assays that can be used in trauma and critical care situations to give us information on patients' bleeding parameters beyond the traditional PT and INR that we're used to. Authors here look at the effect of DOAC use on these TEG parameters. It's a small, single-site, retrospective cohort study among adult patients on rivaroxaban or apixaban who got a TEG. They found a couple of the parameters were abnormal in a couple of the patients. They looked even at a subgroup analysis of patients who had last taken a dose within a window where there should have had peak effectiveness of the DOAC, and still the TEG parameters weren't reliably abnormal. So unfortunately, based on this study, it doesn't seem like TEG is going to be a reliable tool for us to use in assessing the bleeding risk of our DOAC patients. This TEG and this viscoelastic assays are kind of the new kids on the block. There's TEG and there's Rotem. So listen back to the July 2020 MRAP segment on them to learn a little bit more. Paper number four, effective time to treatment with antiarrhythmic drugs on return of spontaneous circulation in shock refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This isn't the first time amiodarone, lidocaine, and placebo have been studied. Swami talks about the ALPS trial from the New England Journal of Medicine in the July 2016 EMA, which demonstrated that there was no significant benefit on patient-centered outcomes. The authors of this study analyzed the timing of these medications and how it relates to the return of spontaneous circulation. They found that lidocaine was superior to placebo no matter when it was given, but had a higher proportion of ROSC when given earlier. They found that amiodarone performed better than lidocaine and placebo when given earlier, but worse than both when given after about 20 minutes from the time 911 was called. The important thing to remember about this study is that it looked at ROSC and not at survival to discharge or functional outcome, which is what most of us care about. Paper number five, proper preservation of amputated parts. Amputated body parts need to be handled carefully to even possibly attempt replantation. According to ATLS, you have to wrap the part in saline-soaked gauze, place it in a watertight bag, and put that bag on ice. This study wanted to look at how often that was happening properly. It's a small study, only 91 patients, and for most of these, we're talking about an upper extremity digit. Of them, only about a third arrived in the ED with a properly preserved body part. Most came via EMS or a private vehicle, and of those, only a quarter had good part care. 
But of those that came from a referring hospital, still just less than half, or around 45%, had a properly managed part. Both the authors and Sanjay dive into some of the limitations, but this does suggest we have some room for improvement here. Perhaps we need an episode of Grey's Anatomy to properly depict severed digit transport so everyone out there knows what to do. Right. So you're saying what not to do is just to like scream and run around the room and be like, not great, not great, not great. That does happen sometimes in Grey's Anatomy, I'm told. (laughs) So don't do that. Okay, got it. Right. But you know, these patients, a lot of them were coming by private vehicle with their own finger, you know, not properly stored. So some episode, you know, one of the daytime talk shows or something could actually teach people what to do. You know what? That's a great idea. I really think that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a PSA, you know. All right. Paper number six, thiamine supplementation in patients with alcohol use disorder presenting with acute critical illness, a nationwide retrospective observational study. We give thiamine to prevent Wernicke encephalopathy and Korsakoff syndrome. This has been ingrained in our heads since medical school. So how good are we at doing it? There were 15,000 patients from 133 hospitals presenting with a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder who were admitted to the ICU with either alcohol withdrawal, septic shock, traumatic brain injury, or DKA. Only 51% of them were given thiamine. Now, I can understand the patients that presented with sepsis, which may be unrelated to alcohol, so not at the top of our radar but only 59% of patients in withdrawal got it. The one silver lining here is that for the majority of patients that got thiamine, it looks like it was given in the ED. So we got that going for us, which is nice. Excellent, excellent. (laughs) I mean, so obviously I trained at Bellevue under Dr. Goldfrank and Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Vasallo, all of the toxicologists who basically, you know, not basically, who did write the textbook. Right, literally, literally wrote the textbook. Literally on what to do here. So I am a big fan of thiamine, but yeah, don't forget to do this. I'm so glad it was the ED that was the ones being successful here because this is our jam. Yeah, we kind of rock. Paper number seven, comparison of push-dose phenylephrine and epinephrine in the emergency department. This retrospective observational cohort study wants to compare both the efficacy and safety of push-dose phenylephrine and epinephrine in the ED. They found a greater increase in blood pressure in the push-dose epi group and no real difference in heart rate in either group. Unfortunately, they also found a higher number of dosing errors in the epi group, and that's despite this study being done in a shop with pre-mixed push-dose epi syringes which you think would really cut down on the possibility of errors. I think overall, the tide is definitely turning in favor of both push-dose and short-course peripheral pressors, but dosing errors remain an issue even obviously in favorable circumstances. So whenever possible, get a pharmacist involved and definitely double and triple check your math. For more on push-dose pressors, you can check out the MRAP 2020 September segment. Yeah, It's so crazy to me that one of like the most important medications that we have is the one that has the most confusing doses. You know, oh, I know. one to 1,000, yeah. one to 10,000. I mean, it's like, come on. Like, I you, know. Like, and, why? Then, and then it's up to us. I mean, this is great that the hospital in this study had pre-made syringes, but like we have to then dilute it down and pull it up. And it's like, oh, good Lord. Right. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right that if you're going to have push-dose pressors, it has to be in pre-made syringes. This is not something that like you should be pulling up on the fly. Yeah, I agree. And it's certainly not if you don't have a pharmacist who can help you out with it. Right. Paper number eight, low tidal volume ventilation for emergency department patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis on practice patterns and clinical impact. 
We know that lung protective ventilation improves outcomes in ARDS, and there is data that this is also beneficial in patients without ARDS. This CIRMA, that's right, Jenny, I just abbreviated systematic review and meta-analysis, so I'm going to go with that. Yes, let's let's use that. Let's use it. I'm tired of saying that. It's so long. Right. It's like, CIRMA, it is. Let's do it. So this CIRMA looked at low tidal volume ventilation, which is the cornerstone of the protective strategies to assess outcomes. They found that this was associated with lower mortality, less ARDS, shorter ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and more ventilator-free days. Mike points out that almost all the papers were retrospective and the quality was low. So this isn't the end-all, be-all. But one interesting finding is that over the course of about a decade ending in 2018, the average tidal volume went from 9 to 6.5, so word is traveling. Not that fast, but uh, we should all probably get on board. Definitely. Hopefully this, right now, this paper and this podcast talking about it will travel faster. Right. Make it travel faster. Go Surma. Go Surma. (laughs) (laughs) Paper number nine, determinants of pyelonephritis onset in patients with obstructive urolithiasis. This paper wanted to identify predictive factors that would tell us when a patient might develop pylo in the setting of their obstructive kidney stone. They looked at 120 patients but only 17 of those actually ended up having obstructive pylo. They examined a lot of different variables, including candidate variables like vital signs, patient characteristics, lab values, imaging findings, and they found, ultimately, that a history of diabetes, an elevated CRP, a stone size greater than 5 millimeters, dilation of the renal pelvis or perirenal fat stranding on imaging, and positive nitrites on UA were associated with obstructive pylo. But Leukocytosis, AKI, multiple stones, and pyuria were not. This sounds good, but as Sanjay points out, there are some notable flaws in case identification and methods that make these findings a bit suspect. Too bad. Paper 10, a clinical decision aid to discern patients without and with midfacial and mandibular fractures that require treatment, the Reduction 2 study, a prospective multicenter cohort study. The authors in this paper derived clinical decision tools to help in identifying which patients with mandibular and mid-face fractures would require reduction. The idea being, if conservative treatment is acceptable, you could spare a CT. The decision aid for mid-face fractures consisted of facial depression, epistaxis, ocular movement limitation, palpable step-off, objective malocclusion, and tooth mobility or avulsion pretty intuitive findings that would push, I think, most people to get a CT. This had a sensitivity of 97% and a negative predictive value of 99%. Not too bad. For the mandible, elements included mouth opening limitation, jaw movement pain, objective malocclusion, and tooth mobility and avulsion. This had a sensitivity and negative predictive value of 100%. Also, pretty good. This is certainly promising, but we obviously need to see some validation studies before adopting it. Paper number 11, Efficacy of Ketorolac in the Treatment of Acute Migraine Attack. This is a CIRMA. Love it. Systematic Review and (laughs) Meta-Analysis. CIRMA. (laughs) Looking at how well Ketorolac works in our ED treatment of migraine headaches. It's a commonly used medication in our headache cocktails, but why? Is it really working? They looked at 13 randomized control trials comparing either IV or IM ketorolac to other agents, including phenothiazines, metoclopramide, sumatriptan, dexamethasone, sodium valproate, caffeine, and diclofenac. Ultimately, they found no differences in a variety of outcomes, including pain intensity at one hour, 
recurrence of the headache, ability to return to work, need for rescue medications, or adverse effects. There are some major limitations here. For a start, ketorolac is being compared to a comparator medication, not placebo. And each specific study of a specific comparator is relatively small and then lumped together with all these other comparators. So does this medication work better than some other medications sometimes? Yeah, sure, it seems to. I applaud the author's efforts here because migraines are you know, terrible and I want to know what medications are going to actually work the best. Migraine cocktails are a crazy black box that we all just seem to inherit from whomever we train with. I'm just not sure that this paper really is going to move the needle for me. You know, it's funny. What I always tell patients when I'm treating them, as I said, treating headaches is more of an art than a science. Yeah, right. Definitely. It's like yeah. we have we each have a cocktail that we use that we hope kind of hits it from all these different angles. But, you know, it's not consistent. And you're right. It's like we kind of it's based on what we were trained and then what we developed. But we mm -hmm. all have one. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be really interesting, right? It's like you could pull X number of emergency physicians when you meet them, be like, oh, hey, where, where are you? What do you work? What's your migraine cocktail? You know? Yeah. <laughs> How do you take down an agitated patient and what's your migraine cocktail? All right, let's grab a drink. All right, paper number 12. Outpatient and oral management is suitable for infants 60 to 90 days old with urinary tract infections at low risk of bacteremia. This was a retrospective study that assessed bacteremia rates in low-risk infants with a UTI. An infant was determined to be low-risk if well-appearing in the ED with a procalcitonin value less than 0.7. Their hospital had an algorithm where you can send these patients home with an oral third-generation cephalosporin. Of the 105 two- to three-month-old patients, 12 had bacteremia, but no infant with a positive blood culture was defined as low risk. Four of the patients sent home were later hospitalized due to medication intolerance, but this approach seems reasonable. We're not quite there yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see some practice changing coming in the future here. Great. I love that. Paper number 13. Femoral artery Doppler ultrasounds is more accurate than manual palpation for pulse detection and cardiac arrest. And I'm done. <laughs> and you're done, right? It's the Rick award there. Yeah, there we you go. Know, and we're done. This is a prospective cross-sectional partially blinded diagnostic accuracy study looking at a convenient sample of around 50 cardiac arrest patients. During the 200 or so pulse checks performed on these patients, they had the treating team perform their standard palpation pulse check and a separate study team perform a femoral artery ultrasound that was hidden from the treating team. They found that Doppler ultrasound had a much higher accuracy than manual palpation, 95 to 54%. The concern would be, however, that this visible pulse on Sano would be detected when a blood pressure was really way too low to safely discontinue compressions. So they went on to test whether measuring peak systolic velocity helped to avoid this. They found that peak systolic velocity correlated well with blood pressure and accuracy for detecting a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 60, which is probably when you can safely stop compressions. They found that this was best when they used a peak systolic velocity more than 20. This, of course, needs to be validated in further studies before it's ready for prime time, but it does seem promising. All right. Paper 14. Are mental health and substance use disorders risk factors for missed acute myocardial infarction diagnoses among chest pain or dyspnea encounters in the emergency department? This paper sought to determine if having a mental health disorder affected the chance of missing your MI. The authors took two approaches to analyze this, a look forward and a look back. 
For the look forward, they took patients that were seen and discharged from the ED with chest pain or dyspnea and followed them for 30 days to see if they were hospitalized with an MI. For the look back, they took patients hospitalized with an MI and assessed the preceding 30 days to see if they had an ED visit for chest pain or dyspnea. So what did they find? Looking forward, there was no difference in patients with and without mental illness. Looking back, however, there was. You were 50% more likely to have a missed MI if you had a mental illness, and if you had a concomitant substance use disorder, your risk doubled. While the results may be a bit confusing, the take-home should be clear. Be consistent in your approach. Don't let a patient's history of mental illness or substance abuse dissuade you from doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, those findings aren't terribly surprising to me. This reminded me of a the specific patient I remember seeing in residency who came in because he thought he needed a refill of his psych meds. He was a patient with a, a psychotic disorder and he thought he needed a refill of his psych meds. And oh. I asked him why. And he said, because he felt like he was having like creatures that were like clawing their way out of his chest. And I look back in his chart and he had literally been discharged from the CCU like two weeks earlier from having a huge MI. And he said back then the symptom of his MI was like these creatures were like clawing their way out of his chest. So he was describing wow. it in terminology that had this very you know, psychotic kind of overtones to it, but he was describing chest pain. And I was like, I don't think you need a refill of your psych meds. I mean, you need that too. But I think what you need is an EKG right now. You know what? It's good that patient had you as their doctor. Well, you know, I mean, I got lucky by doing a good chart review or something. I don't know, but it is true. You know, I mean, it it doesn't surprise me that these patients are getting missed. um, So we should be very systematic in taking care of them And, and just always have a, as with anything, chest pain, abdominal pain, head injuries, in this higher risk patient cohort, we just have to be more vigilant. Right. All right. That was a long tangent. Let's do paper number 15. Length of stay outcomes in patients receiving ketamine sedation versus beer blocks anesthesia for procedural closed fracture reduction. So to understand this article, you have to understand what a beer block is, which is essentially... Sounds IV. good. <laughs> yeah. I'll take one of those. <laughs> so it's essentially IV local anesthetic. Sanjay goes into more detail on how this is done, but basically... The extremity is tourniqueted with a blood pressure cuff and IV anesthetic is used, giving you a numb limb. I have never seen this done in the ED in the United States, but apparently it's used with some frequency in Australia. So this paper looked at three pediatric emergency departments in Victoria and compared this beer block to procedural sedation. They had around 350 patients, ranging in age from 3 to 18, and almost 85% of these had procedural sedation. So while the beer block is used in Australia, it certainly doesn't seem to be the most commonly used choice. And probably not surprisingly, the group that got the beer block was significantly older, with the average age of 13 for the beer block versus 8 for procedural sedation, which makes sense since the child has to be able to cooperate with the procedure. They have to let you, you know, exsanguinate their arm and then put up this blood pressure cuff. It's a whole thing. What they found in terms of the length of stay was that the post-procedural length of stay and the overall length of stay were shorter in the beer block group. This isn't a trial, so there's the possibility of selection bias and co-founders here. And this paper doesn't give us any information on patient comfort or pain level or procedural success rate, which are two things I'd be a lot more interested actually when deciding to learn and use this technique than the length of stay. But that wasn't the point of the study. This was a length of stay study. It's an interesting technique, it's intriguing, and it would spare a child a procedural sedation, so it may be useful for us to learn about it and pull it out for the appropriate patient. You know what? 
the beer block that I had in my mind was a lot more fun than that you described. <laughs> so maybe we could do my beer block like at a future location or whatever. Sounds good. Let's do that. All right. Paper 16. Manual reduction of incarcerated abdominal wall hernias, a feasible option during COVID-19 pandemic, a prospective study. We reviewed a similar paper last month in which we determined that reducing an incarcerated hernia, not a strangulated one, is a safe and reasonable approach. This paper affirms that. This was also a single-center study that found they were able to reduce two-thirds of the 86 patients they enrolled with an incarcerated hernia. They considered it successfully reduced if it went in and the pain resolved. Patients were then observed in-house for 24 hours and no complications were noted. So, if a patient presents with an incarcerated hernia with no concern for strangulation, reduce away. If you can't, call surgery and let them try. And if all else fails, they can take them to the OR. Great. Paper 17, the 35-millimeter rule to guide pneumothorax management increases appropriate observation, and decreases unnecessary chest tubes. In 2017, the Medical College of Wisconsin changed their policy for chest tube use in small, isolated, traumatic pneumothorax, so those that were less than 35 millimeters. They moved to an observation-only protocol rather than the chest tubes for all. This paper reports on their findings both before and after this change. They found that they indeed placed fewer chest tubes after the policy change and found no significant increase in observation failure rates, hospital or ICU length of stays, complications, or mortality. It's retrospective observational data, not a trial, but it certainly argues for the safety of this observational approach. And this is now what is recommended by the Western Trauma Association consensus statement as well, and we covered that actually back in the January 22 EMA. You and I talked about that. For more on pneumo and hemothorax managements, you can go back to the May 2019 MRAP LIN session. All right, paper 18. The association between the degree of fever as measured in the emergency department and clinical outcomes of hospitalized adult patients. I like this paper. It basically asks, how high is too high? These authors analyzed a little over 21,000 febrile patients that were admitted to an Israeli hospital. 12% of this cohort died. They looked to see if there was any correlation between how high the fever was in the ED and 30-day mortality. The risk of death was about one and a half times higher with a fever over 39.5 Celsius and over twice as much if over 40. Up until that threshold, there was no increased risk of death. So if an adult tells you that they had a fever over 103, I would take it seriously. Paper number 19, Perceptions of Respect from Clinicians by Patients in Racial and Ethnic Minority Groups with Eye Disease. These authors use the National Health Interview Survey to assess whether patients with eye diseases who are in a racial or ethnic minority group are less likely to feel treated with respect and be asked about their opinions or beliefs by their providers when compared to non-Hispanic white patients. They found patients over the age of 65 were more likely to report being treated with respect than those in the younger age group. And for patients who felt that they were not asked about their opinions or beliefs, the majority of those were from a minority ethnic group, around 65%. And study participants in a racial and ethnic minority group had 23% lower odds of reporting being treated with respect compared to their non-Hispanic white counterparts. Not surprising, really, and definitely not great. Now, interestingly, for patients being asked about their opinions or beliefs about their medical care, 
that was associated with a nearly six times higher odds of reporting being treated with respect. So we have to be aware that patients from our minority groups are less likely to feel like we are treating them with respect, but also know that a simple way to make our patients feel more respected is to ask their opinions or beliefs about their care. I love asking patients, what do you think is going on here? You get a great window into their fears. Sometimes you get great additional information that helps you make a diagnosis. And here, it seems that you also help them feel more respected. Win, win, win. Wow, I like that. I like the way you asked that question. That was really well worded. No, thank you. I'm going to use that. Great. All right, paper number 20. Assessment of implicit gender bias during evaluation of procedural competency among emergency medicine residents. So the authors of this study, including our very own Jenny Beck-Esme and Mike Manchin and Mike, Mike, (laughs) sought to determine if implicit bias played a role in assessing procedural competency. They had 51 reviewers that were volunteers from the Council of Residency Directors in Emergency Medicine, 22 men and 29 women. They watched two sets of videos of residents doing procedures and scored them. One video had the gender revealed so you could see the whole person, and the other had the gender concealed so you could only see gloved hands. They looked at the difference between these scores for each resident and found there was no difference between the genders and concluded that these findings suggest that implicit gender bias is unlikely to be the source of established gender disparities regarding procedural competency. Mike talks about other factors that may come into play, such as institutional structural bias, which is important, but I'm not sure we can discount implicit bias just yet. Were these reviewers adequate representations of what you have at your hospital? These physicians came from CORD, which I would hope would have less bias given their involvement in resident education. Also, there were more female than male reviewers, which I'm not sure is the case everywhere. So while no implicit bias was demonstrated in this paper, could it still be out there? Yeah. <laughs> the answer is <laughs> Leave it on the cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> no, the answer is uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's out there. I think that this paper, what it really shows is how complicated all of this really is. You know, Mike yeah. talks about in his segment how many different things are coming into play in terms of your gender bias. This one study of this one very specific competency did not demonstrate that there was implicit bias here, but I don't think that that means we can discount it by any stretch. And with that, we conclude June 2022's Ultra Summary. Jenny, this was a good month. There's lots of interesting papers. Agreed. Right? Lots of good discussion. Jenny was a rock star in paper number 20. Just came up with Surma, which I'm totally going to use from now on. I got to sing the Thundercats theme song. <laughs> so, I mean, like, really, this is not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. All right, folks. We'll keep it cool, and we will see you next month. See ya. It's it's time talk a little nerdy. Talk a little nerdy. With Ken Milne. Welcome to the June 2022 Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is your host, Swami, here as always with my dear friend, Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, how's it going? Oh, it's always great to be talking nerdy with you, my friend. It is one of the highlights of my month. That is so good to hear, Ken, and I'm excited to get into this topic. We were kind of talking a little bit offline. The way a lot of these topics come up is I have Journal Club in my institution. I talk to the residents about the article and I say, here's a short podcast on the methodology topic that I want you to look into. And this was one that I couldn't find a short podcast on. So I said, okay, that's a cue for you and I to review it. So the last couple of months, 
we've been doing a lot of studies about deriving clinical decision instruments or clinical decision tools, which of course can, I know this is something that you are particular about. We should not confuse instruments or tools with rules. Yeah. You know, it's just calling them tools. I mean, really, you're just tempting me to break them. Tools or instruments is a more accurate description of how these things should be used. They're not to replace clinical judgment. We're not talking about adherence of 100%. It's similar to guidelines. They should guide our care. They should inform our care. But they certainly shouldn't dictate our care. And I think sometimes we default to that. We, we say, well, people derived this instrument and I'm going to default to that as how I'm going to care for this patient. But really, it's integrating it with everything else we know and whether it applies to our patient. And as we go through those clinical decision instruments, one of the things that we see pop up from time to time is the idea of internal and external validity. And that's really the topic that, as I discussed with my residents, I realized we hadn't really covered. And this is a very basic concept when it comes to clinical decision instruments or clinical decision tools, but one that maybe we're not as comfortable with as we should be. And I thought it would be a great concept for us to dive into. I figured you and I can talk about what it means when we say validity and what it means to be internally valid or externally valid. So are you ready to take that on? Oh, game on. And for all the Canadian listeners out there, when I say game on, you'll remember when you were, you know, 12 years old playing street hockey and a car would come and like, you'd have to stop the game. And then as soon as the car went by, it was like, game on. So, oh yeah, internal, external validity. Game on, my friend. Is that brilliant scene from Wayne's World, right? Where they're playing uh, street hockey in, in suburbs of Chicago. So that is the image I always have when someone says game on. So let's dive into it. When we talk about scientific validity in terms of research studies, what exactly are we talking about? Well, validity is just an overall evaluation of the claim that's being made, and in this case, in a research study. And it includes whether the study is accurate, is it precise? And is it reliable? That's what we're talking about when we're probing the literature for its validity. And each of those terms, accuracy, validity, precision, reliability, they each have definitions that maybe are, are slightly different than how we use them colloquially when we talk about research. And reliability is one that we often see alongside validity. So what's the difference between validity and reliability? Well, they're connected, right? There's this overlap. Reliability is part of whether a study is valid. Reliability is the extent to which the findings of repeat experiments conducted under, you know, similar conditions or identical conditions agree with each other. In other words, how consistent is this finding? How repeatable, reproducible, or stable is the experimental result? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about reliability. And that feeds into whether or not the overall study is valid. And we're going to have a little table in the show notes looking at accuracy, precision, reliability, and validity, and how they are a little bit different, slightly different than each other, but really important concepts for us to grasp. And that reliability issue, the reproducibility, repeatability of a finding is so important because if you find it in one study, but you can't repeat it over and over again, then it's not really that useful when it comes to guiding my clinical management. So let's go back to where we started. We started by talking about clinical decision instruments. And when we talk about those decision instruments, there's two types of validity we often see in those studies. And that's that internal validity and external validity. Let's start with the internal side. 
when we say that this study had high internal validity, or I question the internal validity of the study, what do we actually mean by that? Well, at a very high level, the internal validity is the extent to which an experiment addresses the question that you're asking. So you ask a certain question, does it have valid methodology to answer the question within the study itself? What gives a study good internal validity? Or if we want to flip that, what makes the internal validity questionable in a study? Well, I'm going to go to our good friend, Professor Daniel Fadovich from Australia, because I think he described it very well. And he said, quote, a clinical trial has internal validity if, and only if, the imbalances between groups, bias in the assessment of the outcome, and chance of having been excluded as possible explanations for the difference in the outcomes, end of quote. There's a lot of important pieces in there, Ken, that basically is when we look at a study, how do we determine that that study is a good study? Reducing things like bias, the imbalance between groups. Now, back in 2017, you and I discussed the Canadian Syncope Risk Score, or the CSRS, to predict serious adverse events after emergency department assessment of syncope. This is by Dr. Thiragana Sambandarmuthi, or as everybody says, Team Venk and colleagues. We noted that the study had good internal validity based on many of the things that you mentioned just before from Professor Fadovich. But we also wanted to see prospective validation of that clinical decision instrument. Why is it important for us to take a study that derives a clinical decision instrument and then ask for that prospective validation? Well, I'm happy to answer that question, Swami, but before I do, this is a great opportunity to give a shout out to one of the legends of emergency medicine, Dr. Ian Steele, who came up with these Ottawa ankle rules, Ottawa knee rules, Canadian CT head rules, Canadian C spine rules, etc. This Ottawa group that is led by Ian Steele, he created this great research group there, this culture of inquiry to looking at clinical decision instruments. And now that group, I believe, has been taken over by one of his mentees, Dr. Jeff Perry, and of course, Team Vank. They're cranking out this research. So I just want to take the opportunity to say, nicely done, nicely done. <laughs> but back to your question. Testing a clinical decision instrument prospectively is important. It's one thing to look backwards, to look retrospectively and say, hey, how does this tool perform? But it's actually another thing to look prospectively to evaluate a CDI or a clinical decision instrument. Validating the tool prospectively strengthens my confidence in the utility of the tool. If the tool works prospectively in another cohort of patients, it makes the strength of that CDI much more robust and, and it raises my confidence in using that tool. When you derive these CDIs and you look retrospectively, it's kind of easy to make the data fit the CDI. It's when you look prospectively that they tend to fall apart. And we know this because we see many rules or, or instruments come out. And when they look at prospective validation from the same group, they don't pan out. And that's how we know that that is important for us to see. And I think many of the clinical decision tools that are created, they kind of fail in that prospective validation. They never get to the next steps. And when I say fail, I feel like that's even too harsh of a term because this is the way the researchers know is the best way to do this research so that it is applicable to other folks. So again, we really commend them knowing that if they've produced four or five good CDIs, 
they've probably had 15 or 20 that just didn't pan out. And that's a lot of work to do to find a couple of things that do work. Now, this group, as you mentioned, they do such great work and they did a validation study. Sanjay and Mike discussed it in July 2020. Of course, we'll drop a link to their discussion in the show notes. And it is really good to see that internal prospective validation. The internal prospective validation seemed to pan out. But of course, we're always asking for more, Ken. We want the external validation. So let's talk about external validation, what it is, and why we want it. Why is it important? So when we're talking about external validity, this is when you apply the tool or the clinical decision instrument in a different cohort of patients and a different location from where the tool was derived or developed internally. Now, if you take the tool into the wild and see how it performs in a new population with clinicians who may not be as familiar with the tool. Now, if the CDI or this tool performs well in this external situation, it points to a much more robust tool and, again, should raise our confidence in the utility of this tool. Ken, what we see from time to time is that a group derives a CDI, they train their docs on how to use that CDI, sometimes extensively train them how to use the CDI or whatever the modality is that we're assessing, and then they roll it out into the general population and it doesn't work because they don't get that same training in every spot. And that's really what we need to see in that external validation. And again, when we go back to this Canadian syncope risk score, Sanjay and Mike discussed some of the external validation studies in February and September of 2021. Of course, we will also drop those links in the show notes. And those external validation studies had mixed results. They didn't always show the same robustness of that CDI as the original studies. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us a few things, Swami. It tells us that this specific risk score is very much like many other clinical decision instruments. They often look good where they were derived and internally validated. But very few clinical decision instruments survive external validity. And the trend is that the sensitivity and or the specificity gets worse than the original study publication. And this has been reported many times. This is not a new phenomenon. And so the mixed reviews should remind us not just about this particular clinical decision instrument, but it's just a good reminder in general that clinical decision instruments are rarely as good as the tool is claimed in the original publication or study. I think that's a really important point. And when we look at the ones that seem to pan out, and you mentioned a lot of these, the Ottawa ankle, Ottawa knee, the Canadian C-spine rule, the nexus for C-spine, they ask relatively simple questions. Syncope is a much more complicated issue. It's a much more complicated presentation. There's so many different things that can cause syncope. And that might be why it's very hard to derive one of these CDIs. And Ken, how many different CDIs have we looked at over the last two decades when it comes to syncope? I, I, I don't even think I can remember all of them, but there's so many that were out there that looked really good, and then they fell apart with external validation. The Canadian syncope risk score doesn't fall apart as much, but again, the studies of external validity are mixed, which means it's hard to know whether we can really rely on this for good decision-making. And Ken, one of the other things that I think we should ask is, should we be comparing the performance of those CDIs to what we were doing before? Oh, I think we should, yes. And, you know, when they put these things together, these clinical decision instruments, we've got to remember that they're basically crowdsourcing knowledge. They're asking clinicians, okay, so if you saw a syncable patient, what pieces of information on history, physical, those types of things, 
do you put at high value or low value? And then that's basically crowdsourcing gestalt. And you take that gestalt and then that's the derivation set. And then you test, oh, okay, so is it X, Y, Z, or A, B, and C? Which lines up closely? Which is associated most with the outcome of interest? And once you get that derivation set, then you, you know, can test it prospectively and then you can go externally and prospectively test it. That's where this comes from. And, you know, I tend to use these clinical decision instruments, not so much in my clinical practice, but I tend to use them more in my teaching to residents because the residents are coming up, they don't have the 20, 30 years of experience, but these clinical decision instruments, they have crowdsourced the wisdom of multiple physicians and I can crowdsource and I can distill that down into, oh, here you go. This is what's been shown to work really well or align closely with the outcome of interest. So I can get residents up to speed quickly. But you and I, we've been practicing long enough. We walk into the room and go, yeah, okay. I got an idea of what's going on. Right? Clinical gestalt. Really important points here. Basically, some of these CDIs are codifying gestalt and allowing us to communicate and teach that gestalt, pass that information down to our trainees. I think that's an excellent point because I find that when I was training, these CDIs were extremely valuable to guide my practice and management. But now as I've seen thousands and thousands of patients, I use them a little bit less in my clinical work. I still Mm -hmm. do like to have them there. Some of them are very useful still, whether it is for the robustness of my charting or more importantly, to remind me of something that maybe I I sometimes forget. And I want to make sure when I examine the patient that I'm looking for that thing, either whether it's an ankle or a knee or a C-spine. So I think they, they still have utility, but you're right. It allows us to pass that information down in a very structured way, which makes them very valuable. While maybe we're not using them exactly the way they were intended, the teaching value of these CDIs is extremely robust. So, uh, you know, again, we want to kind of really congratulate not just this group, but all of the groups who work on these CDIs and try to derive something and put that gestalt into some kind of a decision instrument that we can use understanding how difficult this process really can be to both uh, to start with derivation and then internal validation, prospective validation, external validation. And then obviously, if you push it to the, to the limits, it is comparing it to clinician gestalt and also looking at whether there is a financial benefit of using the CDI. If there's a flow benefit of incorporating that CDI into your practice. And again, when you go back to those ankle and knee studies, Ian Steele and his group did all those things. They said, you know, if you apply the Ottawa ankle or the Ottawa knee rule, not only does it hold up and you won't miss important fractures, it will also improve overall care. It'll improve overall throughput in your department. It'll save radiation. It'll save x-rays and ultimately can save a little bit of money. And we want to see all of that. And that is a lot of work for a research group to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm with you on that, Swami. And what you're getting at is an impact analysis. And I have to say, as these clinical decision instruments get created, the numbers that actually survive through to the point where an actual impact analysis is done is very rare. And once the impact analysis is done, some of them fail at that final stage because I know uh, clinical decision instruments in the past, they had a purpose of, well, we don't want to do so many CT scans of somebody's head, in particular pediatrics, And when they did the impact analysis in certain populations, the number of CTs went up, Mm. not down. And that was not the intent of implementing the CDI. So we, we have to be really careful and remember at the end of this whole process, 
what impact will it have on our clinical practice and the health and wellness of the patients we're trying to treat? Oh, I love how you bring it back, Ken. Now, let's go back to what we started with because we, we got on a little bit of a tangent with CDIs because it's important. Let's go back to the issue of validity. What we really wanted to focus on is internal validity, prospective validation, and then external validity. Internal validity being that the experiment addresses the question being asked and the biases are reduced or eliminated as explanations for the findings. Prospective validation is after deriving the rule retrospectively, you look at it prospectively within the same group to see how it holds up. And then finally, external validity is taking that clinical decision instrument outside of the place it was derived and seeing how it performs, as you said, in the wild, in other locations, and seeing if it holds up. And validity is a really important concept when we look at these diagnostic approaches, whether it be a CDI, whether it be a diagnostic test, of really seeing how it holds up outside of the institution, but also whether that study looking at how it was derived and holds up within the institution is actually useful. So I think a basic but really critical concept for us to be looking at every time we read one of these articles. Love talking nerdy with you. All right, Ken. Well, that was great. I can't wait to come back next month. We've got some great topics in the future. And actually down the line, we are going to have a guest step in for TTALN. You are going to talk to Ryan Radecki a little bit about machine learning. And we're bringing Ryan Radecki in because I'll be honest, Ken, I don't know anything about machine learning, but I'm really excited to hear you guys talk about it. So we've got some exciting stuff coming up for this summer, and uh, we can't wait to see everybody back in the July time to talk a little nerdy. Yeah, for July, why don't I tease out the episode a bit? Yeah. We're going to be talking about something normal. There's your hint. <laughs> We're going to be talking about something, something really normal this time, not some outlier, not something abnormal. We're going to be talking about something Really normal. A word rarely used to describe you and me, Ken, but uh, I will take it today. All right, Ken, a pleasure as always. I'll see you next month. And scene for June. Whew. Whew. Is it hot in this room right now? To, right it's now? a little warm. Okay, because I'm like feeling a little sweaty and I don't normally feel that way. So I'm like, what's going on? In the EMA studio, the, Ill the illustrious EMA studio. I just had a thought mm -hmm. while we were doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good thought, but maybe somebody wants to weigh in. What if we did like, you know how sometimes we do these courses and we call it like EMA Live, right? Or something like that. Oh, what, yeah. What if we did an EMA Live Live? Our whole taping, but just totally live. Invite people to come in. The in the studio. In the studio. Have someone moderate the little chat. Do the whole bit. Because for, for the record, sometimes we do have to pause things because Sanjay says something totally ridiculous and can't know Every once in a while, you get tongue-tied or something like that, and we'll pause it. It's not very common that we have to do that. It probably happens like half a dozen times on, on a taping. But I'm just wondering, is that something that might you know the, the listenership might find interesting? Or somebody might... We'd also well, find out how many people care at all, because it'd be like, you know, well, me, I you, Amanda, maybe my wife would be kind enough to log I in. I don't know. Doctor. That, uh, I don't know. I know we had talked previously about sort of doing a top 10, mm -hmm. like kind of at the at the end of the year that we could okay. do live. Uh, we've had talked about that with Mel before. Maybe it's time to revive the live. Well, we're trying to get Rosk. We're trying EMA to live. It. Yeah. That means that we give amiodarone early, lidocaine late. Boom. Yeah, and check the peak systolic peak velocity, velocity before you call it. it, before you stop CPR. I think we're on to something. I think we're cooking with gas. <laughs> well, um, as, you, it, as you patiently wait yeah, for that EMA live or as top a, 10 live. Yeah. The most important thing to do during that interval, however long it may be, is to stay classy. All right, everybody.